Fights On is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. Since 1972, Cubic's ACMI has been a cornerstone of air combat range instrumentation. Cubic's LVC will expand that capability into the future across multi-domain operations. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome back to Fights On and Part 2 of Episode 7, Putting It All Together. We're going to start today's episode with Navy F-14 Rio and F-18 Wizzo, former CEO of Top Gun and retired Deputy Commander of Naval Air Warfare Development Center, Steve Sonic Hemanowski. Sonic is going to fill us in on the philosophy behind Air Wing Fallon, which prepares carrier air wings for deployment, as well as the expanding role Nautic is playing in bringing warfighting excellence, not just to aviation, but across the fleet. You're cleared hot, because the fight's on. The, uh, the carrier strike group is the, is the basic unit, uh, basic employment unit for the United States Navy. So we have East Coast squadrons and West Coast squadrons. So I have to bring those units together and train. We flew around and 30 minutes later, I'm bleeding all over the cockpit. The aircraft is, you know, beeping and bobbing and making all kinds of weird noises and falling apart. Aggressors are entering, entering the airspace at this time. Cruise action, the combat spread real tight. Roger, tell you, I've got one, uh, and he's in a left-hand turn. Oh, you're about to get guns. Ox one on the F5, nose down. Turn in, fight's on. Hey, welcome back, everyone. We're here with Steve Sonic Hemanowski, retired U.S. Navy F-14 uh, Rio and F-18 Wizzo. Welcome, Steve. Well, thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. All right. Well, Sonic, is I'll call you if that's all right. Why don't you oh, give us your background, commissioning, how you got to fly the Tomcat and then the Hornet, and what you did during your career? You bet. I'll try to keep this somewhat uh, concise, but after 30 years, it's kind of hard to bound it all in there. But Naval Academy graduate, class 1992, grew up in Central Pennsylvania. That's where I was originally from. After that, uh, while I was at the, uh, the Academy, uh, long story short, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And you know, this whole flying thing or flying off aircraft carrier sounds pretty neat. Uh, although my, uh, my eyesight went bad in high school. So uh, I was forever going to be a, a naval flight officer, which was great. Once I got into, uh, obviously once graduated uh, and picked up uh, aviation down in Pensacola, you know, I really wasn't sure. You know, I knew, you know, you have to keep in mind too, that time frame. one of the most influential books I read was uh, Flight of the Intruder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to, off to Pensacola with the uh, visions of uh, being an A6BN. Of course, once I got there, A6 was being retired, so there were no more A6 students. Um, and it was an interesting time because uh, there were a lot of, uh, obviously, the Navy was downsizing quite a bit at that time, coming off the Reagan years. Uh, so you think about the 1992 time frame where we were going. At that point, uh, I wanted to carry aviation was very appealing to me. And uh, I wanted to be out on the, uh, the the pointy end of the stick, so I uh, was fortunate enough to uh, pick up F-14s, and I uh, got winged in '95. Off to a VF-101 uh, at the time uh, there in uh, Oceana for the FRS, and uh, training as a Rio uh, radar intercept officer. After that, picked up my first squadron, which was uh, VF-211, uh, the Fighting Checkmates, uh, based out of uh, currently. The time they were on deployment uh, on USS Nimitz and uh, CAG-9, then I'll circle back to that here. You'll see the uh, I'll tie all that together. But they were still based out of Miramar at the time, which is great. So I like to tell uh, folks, uh, I'm probably one of the last few guys, there aren't too many of us left that were uh, still say we were old enough to uh, 
be flying Tomcats out of Miramar that uh, or at least, uh, at least you know, recently retired. Right. So I caught them on deployment. Uh, then uh, we uh, moved the, uh, the squadron back to uh, Oceana as we single-sighted all the F-14s at the time. Uh, coming off uh, that tour, I, uh, again, uh, you know, really enjoyed, worked really hard to, uh, to be good at my job. One of the things I always uh, kept in mind was, and, uh, you know, kind of instilled in me in flight school is uh, I needed to, and this, and this is a theme you'll hear sometimes throughout the, even currently, we talk about, you know, viability. Should we have multi-seat aircraft, uh, certainly multi-seat fighters, but uh, I always sat there and go, I, I need to make sure that I am a, uh, an added asset to, uh, to the fighter pilot in the front seat. So I worked really hard to be a good co-pilot. And uh, I apparently worked hard enough that I uh, was invited to uh, go through the uh, Navy Fighter Weapons School and Top Gun and uh, did that in uh, 1999, October 99, and then stayed on board for the staff. Uh, while I was on the staff, I was the uh, F-14 uh, AUG-9 uh, radar SME. And then uh, ultimately, uh, my time there went on to be the training officer at Top Gun. Nice. Uh, rolled out of there. Yeah, that was, uh, that was great. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell people all the time, when it comes to Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun, and, and my time there and being a part of that organization, it is a debt uh, of gratitude I can't ever repay for what it, how it molded me, how it shaped me, and certainly uh, gave me a skill set that went beyond just flying airplanes. So, uh, again, uh, kudos to, uh, to Top Gun and the staff. Always. Uh, rolled out of there. You know, that was uh, right at the height of uh, the beginning of the early transition of F-14s to uh, the Super Hornet F-18, and certainly the Tomcat community, to the F-18 E and F community. I had an opportunity to uh, roll out of there, go to VFA-41, but I thought it would be, I wouldn't be paying enough uh, back to uh, my time at Top Gun, so I decided to go back to uh, F-14 Squadron, and I went back to VF-211 uh, back in Oceana. Did my department head tour there at the time, so think about the uh, at that time frame, um, early 2000, you know, 2004, 2005 timeframe, they're actually talking about taking VS-211 from F-14As. That was, uh, did the last F-14A deployment uh, with VF-211 um, on the USS Enterprise. Uh, we were going to come back and switch to F-14Bs and the B upgrade at the time, but they decided that uh, they wanted to transition to Tomcats early. So we became the first East Coast squadron to transition to the Super Hornet. So I uh, came back from that deployment. We packed up the entire squadron and basically did a uh, eight-month land-based deployment to uh, NAS Lemoore to uh, transition to the uh, F-18F. Uh, Brought that back uh, to Oceana, finished up my department head tour there, uh, went over to VFA-106 in the EF detachment at the time to be the uh, operations officer over there uh, while there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to screen for command, uh, and while waiting to start uh, my command tour, did a quick hitch at uh, Commander Naval uh, Air Land, working in the readies department, writing the master aviation plan. Uh, since I was a benefactor of that transition, <laughs> I wanted to uh, start help making that, try to put the put it together, put the rest of the pieces yeah. together for the rest of the transition. So great experience over there, though. Um, learned a lot. That, that gave me a lot of background on being an EXO. Uh, off to Japan for my EXO tour um, and uh, the VSA 102 uh, Diamondbacks. Uh, based out of Atsugi at the time and on the George Washington. Uh, did my two and a half years over there. And like most people, I always say, went over there kicking and screaming and uh, came back the same way. What a great tour. Uh, what a what an absolute blast that was. And uh, certainly uh, being an EXO and CEO of a yeah, four-deployed uh, squadron was was exceptional. And I had a, I had a great team, uh, had great maintainers, uh, great, great airplanes. We actually uh, transitioned uh, from uh, low-lot uh, Block 23s to uh, Block 32s. And so uh, did they got to do a trans pack as well. Glad I got that under my belt. Glad I only had to do that once. <laughs> um, good experience. Wouldn't want to do that again. And then uh, 
rolling out of the rolling out of VFA 102 was uh, off to uh, come back to uh, Fallon and uh, assume the role as uh, the Top Gun CEO or the Top Gun department head. At the time, was still not uh, in SOC, not Nautic. So I came back, uh, that was in 2011, came back, uh, ran the uh, schoolhouse, which was a uh, phenomenal tour. That was my opportunity to meet the original top, some of the original Top Gun instructors wow. um, and really start building a strong relationship with them. That was, uh, that was a phenomenal experience to be able to do that and uh, still keep in touch with those guys today. So I'm blessed to be able to uh, be that fortunate. Uh, did my time at both at Top Gun and Strike. That's uh, we could talk about that. We get into the nautic yeah. discussion a little bit. Rolled out of uh, rolled out of that. Uh, had to go. Uh, realized if I wanted to continue doing this, had to go pay my penance <laughs> off on I-80 eastbound to the uh, five-sided wind tunnel. OSD uh, and ATNL there in, inside the building uh, for my time in the Pentagon, which uh, again learned a lot. I, I joke about that, but uh, that was also a phenomenal, uh, I think, molding experience. Yeah. Um, and being able to uh, work inside uh, work inside that building and see how things actually work. So I learned a lot there uh, while I was there, screened for uh, CAG. Before I rolled out of the building, I did, did get to do a three-month hitch, a three-month hitch as the uh, battle director at the KOC at LUD, which one, again, this, uh, you know, I always like to joke about the fact that sometimes I always wonder what the Air Force was thinking because uh, they let the Navy guy run the air show from uh, <laughs> during the vampire shift. I have very little to no adult supervision while running the KOC from uh, basically 8 o'clock at night to 4 o'clock in the morning. And nothing bad ever happens during those hours, right? Yeah. No. Yeah, never. No, no. <laughs> and, and I, I was looking at the like, this really thought, yes, I really think this all the way through. Uh, but that was, you know, great people, phenomenal tour watching that and, and again, seeing how things work. So I learned a lot from that. And then off to be a CAG and DCAG at CAG 9. So my, my career came full circle, started off in CAG 9 as a lieutenant and was able to uh, come back as the Air Wing Commander. Awesome. Uh, 2016, I, was, I checked in as DCAG, they were on deployment, wrapped up that deployment, came back, took them all the way, you know, took the CAG 9 team all the way through workups and they, uh, on the John C. Stennis uh, and uh, did a 18-19 around the world cruise. Wow. Phenomenal okay. team. Just crossed the strike group, though, was strike group three, just a, a you know, phenomenal uh, my contemporaries, other warfare commanders were exceptional. My my squadron CEOs, I say to this day, uh, I, I don't think anybody could have had a better bunch of squadron CEOs and XOs that I had. And uh, they were uh, they were fantastic. Uh, made me look like a rock star, but uh, all my credit goes to what they did. It, you know, combat ops, we did, it, it was a unique deployment all the way over to, the, still doing some combat ops uh, in Iraq and in, in Middle Euphrates, River Valley. Uh, left there, went back to uh, support the summit at the time in uh, Vietnam between North Korea and obviously the uh, United States, uh, all the way down south to Australia, then back to the Gulf, uh, did some more combat ops out of the Gulf, through the ditch, into the Mediterranean, did some ops there, and then brought her all the way home. So that was a was a great experience, great team, and uh, learned a lot. Coming off of that, was blessed one more time, asked to come back out to Fallon, and uh, now, for now, Nautic, and uh, assume the role as deputy commander out there, which, uh, love the organization, uh, jumped at that opportunity to be able to do that, and uh, wrapped up uh, three and a half years, and uh, here we are now. So I didn't quite make that quite the, the short and concise point I said I was going to, but I think that gives you gives you enough background on me. That's a lot. It's all important. So I think it's it's all good. A couple things for the listener, that Transpac is something, correct me if I'm wrong, but unusual for the Navy, and that's flying the planes across the ocean, right, to get uh, to from Japan. We, true. And just keep in mind, there, there was a small error there uh, mid-early uh, mid 2000s where we had the... Uh, 
the UDP squadrons, which was uh, the the four deployers to support the right. armory, the, the you know the, the, the expeditionary squadrons out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So we did that free that for a little while, and you know, the Navy does do it on occasion when we swap out aircraft here and there. But uh, yeah, the, that's been a pretty impressive taking thirteen jets across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Uh, doing, doing some island hopping on the way and then uh, picking up new jets and take them all the way back. So, yeah. And then uh, doing very, a, very cool. a round the world cruise. Uh, so a lot of unique experience, a lot of in-depth experience and a lot of experience up at Fallon. And that's what we're here tonight to talk about. So, you know, for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with the background, you know, they they know what Top Gun is, they know what Top Gun uh, or what they think Top Gun is, Right. Sort of give us the picture of what Nautic is, where it came from, where Top Gun fits in there, and then also the other commands or the other departments that are there that perform that function for the the non-fighter community. You bet. So not to uh, state too intuitively obvious, but obviously uh, Top Gun was the foundation, right? So March 3rd, 1969, go back there uh, 53 years. At the same time, uh, you still had Strike University going on. So as Top Gun matured over the years, out of Miramar, you know, ultimately led to cause as well. So you had Top Gun for the fighters, and then we had uh, developed at the time uh, Carrier Airborne Early Warning Weapons School. Um, so they were uh, stationed together there in Miramar, working uh, working together to build the tactical subject matter experts for the fleet. At the same time, up in Fallon, you still had uh, Strike University, right? And in Strike University, you know, I always tell folks, and you know, probably something that I certainly understood more once I became an air wing commander is again, you have uh, a lot of phenomenal equipment. I got a lot of phenomenal people and uh, we have amazing machines that do amazing things. And even though the fleet today looks very similar across the board with growlers and echoes and foxtrots um, and capabilities, you know, being able to blend and mesh those teams is always a challenge, right? When, when you're, you're spread out across, certainly for the uh, West coast air wings, you're spread up and down the coast from Whidbey Island to San Diego. Uh, with Lamore there in between. So trying to get units to work together, right? There's a lot of synergy that comes from all of those platforms and what they can do, but how do you force them together to go do that? Uh, what we learned from some of our mistakes uh, in the early 80s in uh, Lebanon and, sir, and certainly uh, some of those other attacks in Syria that we, get, we have great machines, we have great people, but we didn't do a very good job of working together. So Strike University and Training Air Wings was, uh, was born out of that to make sure that that we were, you know, that became a forcing function to integrate an air wing and so that we could uh, you know, maximize that synergy uh, across all those platforms. Because uh, a lot of stovepipes, uh, you know, certainly community pride, certainly community focuses on what they do, but the ability to bring all those uh, disparate entities together and form a very cohesive team, you know, prior to going on deployment is very, very challenging. So and that, that was kind of the genesis of Strike University. Very kind of cursory approach, but that's uh, the bottom line. 1996, kind of starting to the point of the uh, idea was sparked of, well, you know, what we really should have is all this training in one place and start building on the synergy of the, dis- you know, the disparate weapons schools to be able to combine with strike. So we have all that subject matter expert in one place. And so the idea of uh, the Naval Strike at Air Warfare Center, not PENSOC, was stuff in 1996. And that brought Top Gun, essentially what that did is that brought Top Gun and cause and strike together under the umbrella of one big command. Um, you know, at the same time, we're still, you still had, and, and what it would do is it was an opportunity to maximize resources as well, right? Whether it's aircraft, bandits, ba- bandit support, uh, blue air support, the, the ranges out there, uh, whether it's uh, the, you know, electronic attack ranges uh, or the, even just using the, uh, 
the other capabilities out there was was important. So after that, that led into building Seawolf. So the uh, the helicopter uh, helicopter communities like, hey, we're going to follow that model as well. And so you had Strike, you had Top Gun, you had Cause, and then you started throwing in uh, Seawolf as well. Uh, that ultimately expanded out to uh, once uh, we got the once we got the Growler online, then we expanded into Havoc. So you're uh, and then as of late, what we expanded into was the Miser. So Maritime Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance WTI. And I could touch a little bit on that as well. So what you have those are those are what I refer to as your war fighting departments, right? Strike, mm-hmm. Cause, Top Gun, Sea Wolf, Miser, Havoc. So those are your your six primary departments. You also have the JCAS school. Back uh, when I was on the staff, uh, and like I said, I went to Top Gun in 1999. Uh, while on the staff, uh, we were on uh, we were all together putting the class through uh, when the uh, tragic events of 9/11 happened. And uh, uh, once again, one of the beauties of Fallon and NSOC now Nautic is you know it is an organization that when it sees a gap or a seam, uh, you have the kind of quality and caliber of uh, folks out there that work out there, they uh, they put their heads together and find a solution. And at that point, uh, we stood up uh, the Joint uh, Close Air Support uh, School out there as well to train Navy SEALs. You know, EWTG PAC, EWTG LANT, at least for the Navy trains, current, your, your Joint Terminal Air Controllers. Right. And uh, they just didn't have enough capacity to put the SEALs through, which is what we're going to need for, you know, the fight in the, uh, in the desert. And so uh, Nautic stood up uh, the JCAS schoolhouse, and now uh, that is a uh, highly sought-after billet. Uh, most of the SEALs come through here and go through, still to this day, still go through the uh, the Joint uh, Close Air Support Schoolhouse and Nautic as well. So um, that's another – it's kind of a, a more minor department. They actually fit under strike, mm-hmm. uh, but that certainly is another uh, highly you know, warfighting evolution out there. Uh, the rest of the uh, the rest of the NSOC Nautic Command is based around, uh, you know, obviously a, a front office back when NSOC was there, it was a two-star post-strike group commander who led uh, who led the NSOC team. But the success of Nautic or NSOC at the time and what the, uh, the weapons and tactics programs, right? So we talk about our, our air combat training continuum and how we train those young aviators to get them to combat wingmen and combat leads and strike leads. Everyone saw that that was a very, very successful program and actually putting all those weapons schools, A, actually having a weapons school for your specific community and putting them all in one place was a really good idea. So uh, they decided to go with, uh, they decided, uh, this was when I was out there as uh, the second time as a Top Gun CEO, so the 2011-2013 timeframe, we started standing up what is now what I refer to as the, uh, the WDC or the war uh, WDC constellation or the War Fighting Development Center constellation. And so uh, to make that happen, to get everybody, to get all of the communities on board, the, the two star went to a, a brand new one star who leads uh, each of those uh, requisite uh, WDCs. Again, the synergy from having all those WDCs work together has been incredibly effective and will touch on that a little bit here on down the road. Okay. So you have uh, the front office, um, you have an admin that runs the kind of like a, an overall admin for the entire command. You also have an intelligence department. So you have a directorate where we train uh, all of the uh, squadron AIs. Uh, you train uh, the, the intel folks across the board, the target tiers that go out to the fleets and with all the uh, strike groups and then uh, both uh, the officers and then obviously all the uh, the point, the point droppers and point mensurating folks that put all those packages, those target packs together, right? So that kind of leads a little bit into the miser piece. So I'm going to segue a little bit. Okay. As somebody who obviously for years, you know, working on uh, doing strikes and everything else, 
you know, I always kind of took it for granted that, uh, hey, we're supposed to go strike this target. And someone, hey, what are the coordinates for this target? They would magically appear, right? Hey, well, well, here's the coordinates for this target. And these are, you know, to X decimal point for, you know, X accuracy kind of thing. And I never really appreciated how do we get that? Where do we, you know? And then at the same time, you know, weaponeering for those uh, for those effects, especially now as, as targets get even more complicated, you have a very, very talented group of people who specialize in that, and they are all trained at Fallon. The Miser team, what they saw is, especially as uh, the other side started figuring out how we do business and, hey, when, let's start moving targets, let's start, you know. And uh, what they decided was there's a, there's a significant gap in the left side of the kill chain. So we need to figure out how to, you know, the uh, folks in the, the air crew in the cockpits, you know, if they want to go dynamically hit a target, where's that information coming from? Hey, you know, it doesn't just magically show up. There's a whole significant effort that goes into making sure that is the target. We're tracking that target. We can, you know, find that target, you know, find, fix, and track it, and then be able to uh, definitely give it, you know, weapons quality points and send that to a uh, to a cockpit or another agency unit that can uh, that can fire upon it. So they saw that need, and uh, especially in a you know in a maritime fight, you know, we've been very good at this. Uh, we learned uh, over 20 years how to do this over land in the desert, and, uh, you know, chasing around white pickup trucks and <laughs> things like that. But uh, trying to do it in a maritime environment is certainly a lot more challenging, especially when you start thinking about the expanses of some place like the Western Pacific. So um, the Miser team, again, uh, the Nautic, uh, the Nautic folks at the time saw the uh, saw a need for that and started building and stood up the uh, Miser Weapons School, which is now just taken off, especially in the last couple of years. So NSOC 1996 transitioned to Nautic in the uh, 2014, I think 2015 timeframe. And that is also run. Uh, so we have an N3 department, an operations department. Not only they, they kind of build the schedule across all of those weapons schools. So they, uh, they do a lot of do a lot of juggling. They get very creative yeah. sure to make sure that everyone's everyone's needs are met. Uh, and that is also supported by the uh, what we call the, the maintenance department that uh, has a uh, contract and uh, civilian maintainers and then uh, Navy maintainers that still uh, work on the uh, the weapons school jets. So Top Gun still needs fleet representatives fleet representative jets that support the class. So uh, every class, three a year, we get fleet support, 10 to 12 aircraft to come from the fleet. Those are still, it's a huge tax to pay uh, for the fleet to be able to do that, but uh, absolutely necessary to produce the, uh, the Top Gun graduates that uh, that we send back out to the fleet. So uh, we still have Navy maintainers that still work on those aircraft. Civilian maintainers maintain the rest of the Nautic fleet, which is a combination of E-2s, Growlers, F-18Es and Fs, uh, F-18Cs mm-hmm. until next spring, the uh, spring of 2023, um, and uh, obviously F-16s and uh, and even more F-16s as we look to uh, build out the fleet there in Nautic. So then that kind of gets into the, the, the warfighting departments. And then the last one is uh, certainly have a safety department. So you have the warfighting departments and then everybody else, you know, all the rest of the departments are come in as a supporting mm-hmm. organization to make sure that those weapons schools and those warfighting departments have what they need to uh, train, whether it's weapons tactics instructors or train the fleet at Airwing Fallon. So hopefully that leads you into the Airwing Fallon yeah. piece. That's kind of, it's a, it's a complicated, yeah. it's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a complicated organization. It's a very large organization. It's roughly uh, just over a thousand people. I used to uh, make the analogy with, uh, my, with my, my last two bosses, you know, again, coming off the fleet that I find that Nautic, in many respects, is not unlike an air wing, you know, and an aircraft carrier that turns into the wind every day about eight o'clock and we start launching sorties. You know, so about 1,100 people, that's just on the staff, uh, about 60, 70 aircraft uh, to support all those missions. And uh, like I said, every day, 
for about 50 weeks a year. We only take about the Nautic only slows down for about two weeks around the holidays. Uh, we're launching uh, we're launching sorties, uh, executing high end missions. Uh, every single mission in the naval aviation arsenal that we are uh, expected to uh, execute happens at Nautic underneath the yeah. Fallon Range Training Complex. So it's a it's a fairly large uh, endeavor. You know, to this day, I'm I'm amazed at how much work just gets done out here in this tiny little base yeah, in the middle I, of the desert. I had the opportunity where we met actually uh, to go out and see the setup briefly earlier this year. And it is quite impressive. And I appreciate the description of everything that goes into it. Cause I think a lot of people see the, the bright, shiny, the Hollywood side, and I don't necessarily mean the movie, but I mean the, st- the pointy end stuff that everyone likes to talk about. And there's so much more that goes into it. Yeah, I talked uh, earlier in the uh, series about weaponeering and had guests that talked about, you know, choosing the right weapon and finding the right target coordinates. And this is where all that comes from. And this is all how that package gets made better by the Navy. And it, as you said, you know, in the series, we heard a little bit earlier about how the Air Force had to take some lessons learned and the Navy had to take those lessons learned. As you said, we had some uh, notable failures or at least not successes in the 80s and you know, some, some decent successes in 86 uh, over Libya, but we just built on that to get what we have today. And that is Air Wing Fallon, which is how we prepare air wings to deploy, right? And so that's that's what I want to talk about next is describe for everyone what is Air Wing Fallon. But before I, I cut you loose on that, because we've had a couple Air Force guests on, and I think people are have heard a lot about, okay, an Air Force squadron ups and deploys, and then they have to coordinate with other people. The Navy's different, right? Because we send an air wing onto a carrier, and an air wing is unlike any organization, I think, anywhere. In military aviation alone, even, it's different than anything else. So what is Air Wing Fallon, and what does it do for the deploying air wing and for the Navy? So Air Wing Fallon, again, coming to your point, so great lead in on building on some of those, uh, you know, our failures, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to admit that, you know, we talk about NATOPS, which is, you know, how we operate the aircraft. We talk about NATOPS is written in blood. I would submit that when it comes to whether it's Top Gun, Havoc, any of our weapon schools, and certainly air wing, air wing training, you know, those, those syllabi, what we do, what we try to execute, really, it's based on things, again, you know, to, to use that NATOPS vernacular of written in blood. Um, you know, we, we've learned from those failures, right? Uh, Nautic as a whole is an organization where we, we take all those lessons learned over, over the course of, of you know, mm-hmm. years, decades, try to learn from those failures, and then we try to apply that to training so we don't make right. those same mistakes again, right? And so the, the air wing is very unique. We got four VFA squadrons. Now, the current Current mix, you know, when I was when I was CAG, uh, I was had four, you know, VFA F-18 EF squadrons, three E's, one F, um, Growler squadron, an E-2 squadron, and then uh, my two Hilo squadrons. So you had seven squadrons on board a carrier, and again, my two Hilo squadrons were in San Diego. My four VFA squadrons, I was fortunate. All my Hornet squadrons are actually in Lemoore with me, and then my Growler squadron up in Whidbey, and my E-2 squadron out at Point Magoo. Uh, the way the current you know, mix to make sure that we can sustain our carrier, our, our carrier presence around the world. You know, some of those air wings get fairly mixed up. You have East Coast squadrons and West Coast squadrons together. Some are deploying on East Coast air yeah. carrier, some are deploying on West Coast carrier. So it, it becomes quite jumbled. Now, you know, it, obviously, as we lean into the future, we talk about LVC, hopefully we'll have more opportunities to train. But right now, we still have to bring those units together and train uh, to work on integration, right? We got we to find a way to build on all of the skill sets 
um, all those young aviators have and what their platforms bring, and how can we forge an effective fighting team? You know, the uh, the carrier strike group is the is the basic unit, you know, basic employment unit for the United States Navy, right? So the carrier strike group itself. So the carrier, its escort ships, and, uh, and obviously uh, its air wing. Um, and air wing uh, certainly brings uh, the preponderance of power, firepower, uh, when you start talking about a carrier strike group. Now, obviously, the uh, the destroyers, the cruisers bring significant firepower as well. But for continuity and for mm-hmm. capacity, your your air wing sure. is going to bring the most firepower with the carrier. So, you know, we, we work through the uh, the early parts of the uh, fleet response plan, optimized fleet response plan, is we work through the basic phase into the uh, intermediate and integrated phase. And that's where we really start working on that. So, you know, the early part is just kind of building these very basic skill sets, uh, the foundation, uh, the, you know, the blocking and tackling and, uh, and get everybody up a certain level of currency. And that's not just, that's not, not just the squadrons, that's the whole strike group, right? So you've got every air crew and every, the, the small, you know, destroyer out there, everyone's working their block and tackling, and then you're going to start to bring them together, right? Correct. Yeah. And so an airwing Fallon is really that first, now I will sit there and tell you, you know, as we realize that there's a, there's a mindset now, Hey, the sooner you integrate, the better. And earlier integration is going to make a more effective team. And then and there's lots of bloody for that. Absolutely. Especially in the, in the complicated fight that we're, mm-hmm. we're preparing for, you know, potentially on down the road uh, in this day and age. But I think it's important to understand you still have to find those fundamental skill sets, right? Uh, we are an apprentice, you know, aviation is an apprenticeship organization, right? You have varying levels of seniority within a squadron. Those guys, you know, you're there for two and a half, three years. They move out, new guys move in, and or new, new air crew move in, and so they train together. And again, they're they're like the you know, that's an apprenticeship right. organization. You train your relief. You still need those fundamental skill sets in a, the, that time frame where you can actually build this blocking and tackling skill sets within a within right. a unit. You know, within right. your specific. Right. I, I've used some sports analogies through the series, and one thing for the listener who's not familiar with the. Uh, interdeployment training cycle for the Navy is this is not a static organization when it comes to personnel. You sort of have to look at this depending on whether you want to look at 18 months or three years. Let's take it back to an NFL team. You don't draft a team and then, you know, play that team for five years. Your your training cycle is probably equivalent to, to between five and 10 years of an NFL team's roster life. So you are constantly rotating people in and out on their two, three, five-year tours, depending on what they're doing. And you need to maintain consistency all the way through. Yeah. Free, free agency never stops right. inside, the, <laughs> you know, inside a fighter squadron. And, and one of the challenges that we have right now, which is why, you know, this training, what, what is, you know, the way that the, the training cycle is built, particularly why Airwing Fallon becomes so important is Airwing Fallon happens within 90 days of an, uh, of an Airwing pushing out mm-hmm. on deployment. So that's, it's always going to happen within a 90-day window. Um, and really what it is, it's, it's the first time to bring the air wing fully together uh, to train in a, uh, in a high-end capacity with modern threats um, and, a, and an op tempo that will, that will stress the air wing. You know, air wing founders originally designed to, to basically simulate the first 10 days of combat. So we've lost that a little bit. I don't say a whole lot, but you know, while we don't sit there and say, hey, you're, we're here to simulate the first 10 days of combat, what we will do at air wing Fallon now is, is the op tempo is such that it will stretch uh, both your uh, your air crew, it will stretch your maintainers, or say stretch, stress and stretch, um, as well as your assets and as well as your resources. So it becomes a uh, very much a uh, an opportunity that not only is the training 
certainly high end training, right? Talking about current, you know, current threats fights uh, that you'll see around that you could potentially see when you push away from the pier within 90 days. But we're also going to stress you that op tempo. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we, we need to be able to stress uh, your maintainers, you know, and that includes uploading and downloading of weapons, uh, keeping the systems up to, up to date as you're flying. You're, you're flying, certainly there's days, uh, some squadrons are flying uh, well over, you know, three quarters of their squadron multiple times during the course of the day. So um, it really is a, it's, it's not only as a test of trying for the air crew to solve problem sets uh, using all of the assets within an air wing, uh, but we're also stressing the problem sets for our maintainers and our ordnance men and everyone else to make sure that uh, we, you know, the, the key for Fallon is really that end-to-end -end testing, right? We got it. We got to, LVC is going to be a wonderful tool. Um, but you've got to do the live piece. Right. You and I both know we can put something into a computer, whatever game it is, right. and I can make a wonderful Super Hornet model on my computer and, and fly, and it's going to probably, I can press all the right buttons. But, you know, if something breaks, I can reset it. Right. right. If we don't, no kidding, stress those systems and then, no kidding, stress those weapons, you know, as we upload a weapon, download a weapon, upload a weapon, download a weapon, download a different weapon. Um, if we don't actually stress our, our sailors to be able to do that, I mean, there's a human element to this that is right. critically important. And we need to be able to stress our, our sailors to be able to do this while at the same time stressing our air crew. Because we have to be able to sustain the fight, right? It's, it's fine to bring yes. the skill sets. But we have to sustain that. Absolutely. And we have to sustain that at the end of a pretty long logistics chain that in the Navy's case is, is not that easy just in the building blocks. I mean, when you think about what you do, especially in a, a near peer fight, you know, you're not going to be pulling into a lot of ports to re-up. Uh, you know, that you make a really great point. And there's, so in the other piece of this, Scott, too, which I think is critically important, which, you know, again, I, I always make the, uh, the comment that humans are second only to dogs and habit patterns, right? <laughs> Aviators in particular. We, you know, we, we have checklists we go by and, and, you know, and I will sit there and tell you for 30 years of, of flying airplanes, whether it was F-14s, the Super Hornets, I, you know, when I would climb in the back of a jet, turning switches on and making things, make, making the jet come alive was, was second nature to me. It's like mm -hmm. starting my car. To me, it was that simple. And so those, those habit patterns are critical. Mm -hmm. What the other piece of Airwing Fallon does, we'll get into a little bit of the syllabus here in a second, but what the other piece of Airwing Fallon does is, okay, now take that human body. Hey, you can put me in front of a computer. You can put me in a simulator. Mm -hmm. Hey, if I, if I crash it, I crash it. Okay, yeah, the screen's going to flash red and we're going to recite. Okay, I'm going to put you back at 25,000 feet. Um, it's a very different feeling and executing you know, high-end tactics, executing, you know, what we call standard button pushing for lack of a better term right now, but to me, for simplicity's sake. But now what you do is now take that young, you know, aviator or even that senior aviator, now put them in a 32-plane strike in mountainous terrain with peaks go up to 13,000 feet uh, in the dark. Yeah. Right? So now everything's going off in your airplane. You have bandits on the other side that are coming at you going supersonic. You have things that are lighting you up that are shooting at you, you know, from the simulating surface, to, you know, surface to air threats. And, and oh, by the way, you know, the, most guys, you know, most, most aviators and are going, oh, please, well, I don't know where my wingman is. Please just don't hit me. Yeah. Right. So, so you start throwing in that, that human element and that perspective as well. And, and it, and you know, that's where, that's where people make mistakes, right? They, right. You know, you sit there and go, Hey, I'm just going to be narrowly focused on this. And so you try to simulate those combat conditions. You try to simulate even, you know, you, you add more stress mm -hmm. uh, to what's going on. And that, that becomes all part of the critical training. So, you know, we'll get to the syllabus here yeah. in a second, but I think all those critical elements of this is why the L and LVC should not remain silent. We need right. to do the live piece. Um, those, those are critical things because 
when we get to the end of this logistics chain, and if they are asked to go into harm's way, they need to understand. You know, those young aviators and, and even us senior aviators need to understand that those those, those machines are going to work as advertised. Right. And uh, we've worked, you know, we've we've planned appropriately. We got the right crypto into the aircraft. We've got the right points into the aircraft. The right points into the weapons, and then we get there now that very fleeting chance where the windows open and I, you know, press a pickle button or squeeze a trigger, then, then things are going to happen like they're supposed to. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, there's just no way to simulate that in a, uh, in a virtual environment. I mean, you, you can right. run through it as many times as you want, but you know, until you do the live piece, it's a, it's a different animal. Yeah. I, I don't want to steal, uh, steal too much of PK's thunder. We will talk to in the last episode, <laughs> but uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think he'll agree, you know, don't want to jump the gun, but LVC, you know, a lot of that is to leverage what we can so that we're spending the live time and the live money on the things that exactly. can't be simulated because they are critical. I mean, there's not even an analogy because it's everything we do in life from driving a car to, you know, in this case, flying, it can be fighting. You know, we call it the square range in expeditionary, right? Like everything goes well on the square range. That's not real world, though. No. And you have to get out and understand that. Yeah, you know something as simple as you know, like we we you know you fly you fight all the way in to get to a target, and then you know you roll into the target, and you're like, okay, weapon comes off, so success. It, and just sit there and think about how difficult that is, right? Yeah. The, all the planning that goes into that it, it is, it is probably one of the things I didn't realize until again the, the late stages of my career, certainly as an air wing commander, and you know waking up every day on the carrier, going, are you kidding me? I get I get to do this for a living, right. and you realize that we take what you know we take what we do for. I sit there and go, certainly sometimes we take what we do for granted. Certainly, from a from an air wing commander's perspective, to watch the eighteen hundred people in an air wing come together and make things happen is really eye watering. I mean, it's 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 hard. Yeah, to, I would agree. It's hard to comprehend eye watering because I think it becomes so commonplace. No matter what you're doing in the navy or in the military, you see kids. You know, we say as older guys now, but you see these kids who are eight, 18, 19, 20 years old yeah. pulling these things off that are just yeah. almost superhuman. And then be it the movies or what we get in the news, the whole thing is just made to look so easy. Uh, right. You know, because you guys hold such a high standard in training. So we hear about a bomb going off target or a weapon hitting the wrong target, which is, you know, like the, the two cardinal sins, right? You know, collateral damage and blue on blue. Yes. It happens so infrequently that I think civilians get desensitized to how hard it actually is and how much work and how much training go into making sure it happens as infrequently as it does. And I'll give the caveat, one is too many, right? Like I'm not sitting here going, oh, it was only three, so that's okay. Not at all. It's it's this immense training and work you do. So, uh, you know, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of what you guys are doing up there that gets us to what we see. Right. So, you know, it, we'll, and we'll focus on it because I know the rest of the, there's other discussions on the weapon schools per se. So, you know, Air Wing Fallon itself, you know, while I was throwing my time out there, we expanded one more week to make it a five-week syllabus. And that five-week syllabus, one of the other things we did is, you know, prior, you know, when I went all the previous Air Wings that I participated in, we went to you know, simulate, you know, it's kind of a crawl phase when we first get out there and, hey, let's just kind of fly together. Um, and then, hey, let's kind of fly together and drop some bombs. And then, okay, let's fly together and go up against some bandits and you kind of get to the third and fourth weeks at Airwing Fallon. And it was okay. No kidding. We're, we're doing full on large, what we call large force exercises or, uh, right. you know, the 32 plane out, what used to be referred to as alpha strikes, right? Mm -hmm. 30 aircraft, you know, on the blue side going up against 15, 20 aircraft on the red side and they could, and their ability to regenerate. 
mm-hmm. but really there was it was almost kind of a cookie cutter approach to be able to get there. Right. And I don't sit there and say there was a decoder ring to sit there and pass Airwing Fallon, but you can sit there and go, hey, you execute this one, and we move on to this one. Now what they've done with this expanding the syllabus is we made it more of a problem set, right? Because we also understand that not every air wing is the same, right? The composition changes from squadron to squadron, certainly. Um, you know, there were days that air wings were so, squadrons were associated with carriers and air wings and they never left, right? And now, because of the way the way we do business, I said you got East Coast squadrons and West Coast air wings and West Coast air wings deploying on East Coast carriers. I mean, it's 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 crazy to try to make sure we can meet the demand. And so what you have now is you go, okay, I need to be able to solve problems, right? So it's a, it's a, what we do is it's more of a problem set to solve versus a, here's your target, go strike this target. And we're going to ramp up the, it's going to get more complicated as we go deeper into the syllabus. So now Mm -hmm. what you, what you really see is a, uh, is a very hard problem set and there is no right answer, right? So we've certainly, the, the syllabus has changed to reflect a lot more mission planning uh, not only a lot more mission planning, but a lot more mission planning using a lot of those assets that, again, if I use the miser example, I use, I use coordinates which show up on a card. I go to a brief. Here are the coordinates for Hey, Sonic, here's the coordinates for this target you're going to go after. Here's the weapon you're going to use. Go make it happen. All right, cool. I'll go plan to that. Now it's a lot more in-depth as far as making sure that the mission commanders, the strike package, you know, the strike leads, are no kidding getting into the weeds on, okay, these are the assets that I'm going to have. This is the target set that I'm going to have that I have to go after. Oh, by the way, here is the threat, you know, whether it's surface to air, air to air. And now what we start doing is we make them go back in and, and really get it, bring, bring the miser team in. Okay, how am I gonna get those coordinates, right? What are the what are the national technical means potentially that I could use to get those, get those coordinates? Um, what are some of the other assets available to me in the joint world and the, uh, you know, in the cyber world, right? In cyber and space, there's, mm-hmm. so there's no longer for the aviators pressing the I believe button that those things are going to magically show up. There's a lot more focus on how, how do I ask those questions? Where is that information and how do I go get it? Now you take all that. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Now let's just add one more dimension. It is, the threat's going to continue to evolve and they're going to get more complicated and we're, we're into a peer competition, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, you know, I don't say that's a static thing, but really, okay, we, we know that they're, they're constantly changing. You know, how are we going to tackle that problem? The next piece of that is going to be one of the things that was changed was adding, and it is now proliferated throughout the fleet, was acceptable levels of risk and evaluating ALR, as it's referred to. Um, and that means that what I need is, hey, uh, a strike lead is given, you have, this is, this is, these are the assets that you have. This is the target set that you have. They have to go into the planning and now come back up and go, um, hey, I don't have enough assets or I don't have the right weapons or we don't have the right support, maybe fifth gen, maybe whatever. And and now they go, okay, so if you still want me to hit this target, now my risk, hey, CAG, your risk is going to be extreme. We can actually go get this target, but it's going to cost us a lot. Right. So, so sort of a, the old school was, here's your target, go get it. Right. And what you've moved to is almost, you know, commander's intent Absolutely. based orders. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Which is we need to have this effect on the battlefield, be it literally the battlefield troops in contact or, you know, wherever the battlefield may be. And you're not just flexing the aviator skills or the traditional aviator skills of flying the plane and dropping the bomber. It's the mission planning. Like how do I do that with what I've got? And to your point there of the acceptable risk, if you don't have the weapons you would ideally want, okay, maybe you're you're closer into a threat envelope, or maybe you have a lesser PK. You know, there's a larger risk of collateral damage. Am I am I understanding where yeah, the that, thrust is going here? 
and we weapons are one thing, but I said it really it's more of a vernacular of resources. Maybe I need more aircraft. Got it. Maybe okay. maybe I need more space. Maybe I need more cyber. Maybe mm-hmm. you know, maybe I need more joint coalition support to make this happen. So right. you know, which give back more than anything out right. there. Yeah. Or or maybe less like it could also be less. Hey, I don't need this much. Sure. And so what you do is now you know, now those strike leads can go to CAG, CAG can sit there and go, hmm, this is not my call. I go to strike group command. Right now you sit there mm-hmm. Absolutely to your point, Scott. And now we start talking about what is commander's intent, right? right? And so, yeah, it might be, you know, today might be a day that this that target has to go away. It has to go away. Mm-hmm. I don't care what you do. And yes, the admirals or whatever, the fleet commander, that the strike group commander, the fleet commander, whatever, go, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept those losses to ensure that target goes away, mm-hmm. right? And, and this and this flexes that, that entire chain. Absolutely. Because before we weren't doing that, and trying to figure something out in the heat of the moment, let alone the heat of combat, is just a recipe for disaster. Right. That's what the strike leads really, when I, during my time here to become a strike lead, those, those were the decisions you were trying to make in the cockpit. Now what we've done, you know, real time, and then you come back, you're like, well, that was a poor decision. I'm like, oh, uh, well, that was, uh, that, was, that was my gut that I was going to go with today, but I lost way too many aircraft because this, this, and this, I didn't have, mm-hmm. right? Instead of kind of what if, you know, well, we'll assume you would have had that, so you would this would that doesn't happen anymore. It's like you either have it yeah. or you don't, or you need to create the window to make that happen. So, you know, to make X go away before you can even think about going in there. So I would sit there and say what, you know, the skill sets, uh, you know, that we developed during the rest of the blocking and tackling to get the airwing Fallon. Now we're really starting to not only exercise those skill sets, but, you know, I sit there and say all the time, what we're going to start exercising is the most important thing that we have. And that's going to start using, you know, what's in, uh, what's in our brain housing group and start really start yep. putting together, you know, how do we think through very difficult problem sets, right? Right. I said this for years, and, and it, you know, I've been echoing for years, I guess the best way to put it. You know, our, in a world with peer competitors around the globe, our asymmetric advantage, and it has always been and always will continue to be, our, our sailors and our young aviators, right? our, our lieutenants. That, that's, that's always going to be our asymmetric advantage. So I would like to sit there and say what we do now with Erling Fallon is we, we, act, we absolutely start tapping into that. And you know, we kind of get the gears moving and, and folks start putting together some pretty robust plans and different ways to attack problems. And, you know, and that's going to depend on, again, what's your air, you know, how's your air wing configured? You know, you know, sometimes you might have more assets or the other part of this too, when I would kick off, uh, you know, as the deputy, the air wings would come in for training. I'd sit there go, you know, uh, one thing I think is important for this, for you, for you all to realize, you know, as we kick off this training here is if and when this fight goes down, it might be United States Navy Carrier Strike Group holding the line for the first 72 to 96 hours. You don't know where or when this fight's going to go down. As, as an organization that it prides itself on being forward deployed, we might have to take the first hit, or we might be the only ones out there until we can figure out what's build the folks back here in the, the National Defense Authorities and the security agency, everybody else gets their act together and go, man, what just happened? Time to marshal the forces. But in the meantime, it might be a carrier strike group that's holding the line. Yeah. Uh, until we until we figure that out, and the reason I would tell them that is, I said, you know, I don't have J20s or SU37s on my flight line, so you know, I don't I don't have all of the assets that are getting back there. So sometimes, you know, as, as the deputy commander and the director of training uh, under under Nautic, and I'm going to, I and my staff are going to have to get very creative sometimes to make sure that we are presenting a credible threat to you and a credible picture, um, and we're not making it easy for you. And so, you know, I might have to get creative. So please don't fight me on the scenarios. Right. Right. And that's that's one of the things I think that that the future holds some solutions. But absolutely earlier, yeah, earlier in the show, a couple of the a couple of the guests have mentioned that you know as aircraft evolve, 
they become easier and easier to fly. Yes. The sensors become easier and easier to employ. And I'm saying sensors very carefully, not necessarily the information from the sensors. Now, maybe not easier to fly well, but easier to fly, easier to operate the sensors. And that's freeing up a lot more of that headspace and timing, if you will, everything going on inside that brain unit to employ what you've got in the right way. And that's really what you're stressing, right? Is well, is how do we do that? Not not only that, but I think it, the other thing you're starting to stress, what this thing we start to stress down more is how do you manage all that information, right? Mm. There's a, I mean, I, Good point. you know, for, yeah. for somebody, for somebody who looked at a, a TID in a, the backseat of an F-14, it's, you know, a couple of green squares moving around to what is now on the display, yeah. you know, on a large area display in the back of a late lot Hornet, Super Hornet. I mean, it, it's a lot, it's a lot to consume. Um, and it's a lot to wade through and figure out what's what, what right. you know, who's, who's where, what's the amount of information that is on display or available to an air crew these days is, is, is staggering. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. So while the aircraft have become certainly more reliable, I would sit there and say my early part of my career, there wasn't a day I didn't go flying going, am I going to have an emergency today? Right. Yeah. It's, I love the F-14. It'll always be, it'll always be my airplane. But, uh, you know, there wasn't, yeah. there wasn't a day I didn't go flying going, man, what aircraft challenge am I going to have today right. to ending my career flying the latest block super hornets coming off the line? Um, sitting there going, okay, you know, these things, they, they, I would get frustrated because I couldn't get mids to load because the crypto was wrong. And you're like, okay, yeah. that's, is that my biggest problem today? Really? Yeah. So times have changed and you're absolutely right. So while the ability to fly the airplane and get it airborne is certainly simpler uh, than it used to be, the amount of information that's coming into a cockpit is, like I said, it's absolutely staggering. Uh, and so how do we manage that? It becomes a challenge as well, but it does help in making decisions. And again, to your point, it goes to making and you know, make sure that we force those guys, oh, we're forcing decisions, the folks in this cockpit to make decisions, you know. So, you know, back to the air wing, you know, the, so the first couple weeks still still a little bit traditional, you know, yeah, it, you still have to be very careful mm -hmm. when, when air wings come out to Fallon because for starters, we're at 4,000 feet elevation. And so the air is just a little, we're a little bit closer to the sun and the air is just a little bit thinner um, than sea level. <laughs> And now you sit there and now you throw the mountain ranges, you know, with some peaks out there to 12, 13,000 feet. So there's a little bit of uh, easing into uh, Fallon for that first week. Um, there's still lectures that go on, although we, there's a lot of assumptions, there's a lot of training and a lot of the lectures that we used to spend. We used to spend the first week in Fallon, just the first three, four days in Fallon, just doing lectures. We're like, hey, we, we don't have time for that. When you show up in Fallon, it's game time, right? It's show time. Let's go. We don't have time to spend three, four days doing lectures. So we still train our strike leads and there's plans out there to start pushing that strike lead training even more to the left. So when they actually get to Fallon, it is, you're, it's game on, it's time to go and start to get after the, the high end flying, but uh, still a little bit of ease into that. And then, uh, and really what you, we start doing is we start setting up some of the, uh, the way Airwing Fallon gets after training now is it's, it's building skill, it's building uh, skill sets that are going to be, that are going to be in high demand by fleet commanders, right? So Think, uh, think the skill sets that required for long-range maritime strikes. Think the skill sets required for uh, offensive counter-air operations or defensive counter-air operations or the seed operations. You know, how do we start building the synergy of all those, you know, disparate squadrons to become an effective team? So smaller scale to start off with, um, really, again, just building those skill sets in those particular uh, task areas. And then, then we started expanding that. So that by, by the time you get to weeks three, four, and five, um, you're actually doing a, a very large-scale events, very complicated events uh, with very robust threat uh, capabilities. One of the things we do, without going too much into it, is 
you know, obviously uh, you have on any aircraft carriers is you know, very common, right? The magazine only holds so much. Right. Part of it is that early on is you have an unlimited magazine and you, you know, take as many shots and as many, drop as many bombs, shoot as many missiles as you want. But then as we get later on into the, uh, the syllabus, you go, okay, to my point about you might be the only one out there for 72 or 96 hours. This is your magazine. Use it effectively. So again, not only do we take those blocking and tackling skills and those basic skill sets and go, hey, these are the skill sets that are going to be necessary uh, or going to be in high demand by a fleet commander if called upon. Now we start going, okay, make sure you're still taking valid shots. Make sure you're still doing valid drops. Mm-hmm. And we're going to give you as many as you want. But then we get towards the end, by the way, here's the size of your magazine. That's all you got. That's all you got. Yeah. Not just valid, but it better be on the right target at the right time. And you have limited capacity. Right. So I think about the, you know, as, 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 you know, towards the end, we have to do a little bit of a rolling campaign. So each day builds, you know, each event builds on the next event. Um, and so if the event before, and this now, this is where you, you test the Intel side of the house, right? So if the event before doesn't do well, okay, the right. second event, they didn't take out the targets they were supposed to take out, or if they uh, attrite the, uh, the right amount of fighters, guess what? That rolls into the next event. And so does that, does that information right. flow from one event to the next event? So, you know, as you come back from a strike, you know, making sure that the strike lead is passing the, the strike report back to the ship to make sure that that information is being consumed, yeah. uh, evaluated, assessed, and then pushed back out so that the event going out now knows what they're going up against and they're not just going to assume. Right. So it becomes a, a little bit, you know, it's the best we can do to stress um, real-world operations and, again, stress the op tempo, stress uh, point stressing the weapons that you have available and your capacity and your capability to be able to do that. Yeah. Now, are you guys rolling like cyclic ops like you would on a carrier when you're when you're doing the exercises? Uh, not really. Not not cyclic ops per se. Um, okay. And it's interesting because the Comp Two X, which is the the always said they go Fallon is the land based portion uh, for the air wing. And right. then what we do is we, we practice it on land for five weeks, then we go back out to sea and we practice it off an aircraft carrier for four weeks prior to going on deployment. Um, but even now, um, what you'll find is the days of it's always as constantly cyclic ops have also um, matured as well and realize that, hey, if I have to do a long range maritime strike from the ship, I'm not doing cyclic ops, right? I'm going to, you know, and, and oh, by the way, I need to maximize my resources because I can only put so many on the roof. Right. So therefore, you know, those, those days of cyclic ops, have, have, again, that, that has matured as well at Comp 2X. Even in, real quick, even in family, do long range maritime strikes. So uh, the, uh, the, the strike staff, again, you know, the syllabus has matured. They coordinate with the third fleet, Swoboss, uh, his team, to uh, get surface assets out yeah. there. So the air wing, uh, no kidding, takes off, does uh Times we'll use organic tanking if that's appropriate. They get the fleet out to go strike. Uh, no kidding, a surface target out on the water. Yeah. If we have organic tanking, we'll do that as well. So we used to, everything always used to happen underneath the we call the the FRTC Fallon Range Training Complex airspace. Everything always used to happen there. Even now, that is expanded so that we actually do long range maritime strikes and actually go out over the water. So, uh, no kidding testing the, uh, is your tanking plan correct? Uh, you know, is your fallout right. plan correct? Is your ability to communicate on your way there? I mean, that's valid. It could be, you know, LA center is not a, as you're trying to get from one right. place to another, LA center is not only different than Baghdad center. So if you're talking to yeah. center, you're trying to get from one place to another place. Uh, you got to go through those agencies as well. So it's a very large problem set that we, uh, that we asked the air wing to solve, you know, and so that they build the integration across the air wing. We make them think about integration across uh, the CSG as well, right? So what are the, again, what are those other assets right. that are out there? Um, the last piece of this too, which I think is critically important is the integrated air defense course that is also now set up in Fallon. So either the week before Air Wing Fallon 
or the week after Erling Fallon, what you'll do is you'll bring up oh, a couple members of the strike group staff as well as the entire Whiskey staff. Whiskey is the uh, air defense commander, right? So whether it's the cruiser, you know, the cruiser CO, uh, he brings his team up there. And then uh, in a virtual environment, simulated environment, um, we bring the teams together. So you bring the air wing, uh, the air wing still, portion of the air wing stays behind or gets there early. Um, and then uh, and the, the, all the squadron COs are there and what they, the E2, obviously the growler fighters, yeah. uh, they get together. And uh, no kidding, we do a week of uh, a very high-end integrated air defense training to build not only those skill sets, but also to build the relationships. I mean, that's critically important. Everyone, anyone listening to this and understands, you know, Whiskey, who's on the cruiser, CAG, uh, who's on the carrier, and then you got Zulu, who's worried about uh, keeping the carrier and the strike group safe from the uh, surface ships and anti-submarine warfare. There's a there's a high demand for CAG's assets. Right. Uh, needless to say, some of the uh, some of the discussions in the war room in the morning Cubs get very contentious. <laughs> um, I don't, you know, yeah. CAG doesn't have enough assets to satisfy everyone's desires it becomes critical to build those relationships and, and, you know, and, and having, uh, and right. having really good relationships across the warfare commanders. Nobody, the Admiral doesn't want to see his captains fighting in front of everybody. And so making sure that we build those relationships are key. Um, you know, and, and the last piece too, you know, you got the carrier COs are certainly focused on making sure the reactors are running well and the runways uh, fully operational. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, how do we stress his assets, right? You know, his, which is predominantly his, right. his equipment and his people. Um, you know, sometimes whiskey would love whiskey had his way uh, or her way. Whiskey would want a, a, an alert five all the time, right? That's the most conservative thing. That's right. uh, but, you know, I can't, I can't keep the carrier. I can't keep my air crew and I can't keep the carrier deck crews awake 24 seven for days on end. So right. you got to be able to, you got to be able to massage that. And, and again, building those relationships is, is key to avoid. There, there's certainly enough friction on a deployment. We don't need to yeah, reduce that yeah. friction. I think that's something that, that uh, a lot of civilians or non, you know, even military, not in the Navy don't really realize is we've talked earlier about how disparate it can be between a fighter community, attack community, and the Air Force, a bomber community. Now you start throwing in surface ships and, uh, you know, coming from a guy who was a SWO for 10 years, and it's a totally different culture. And those face-to-face interactions are critical to understanding the other people. And so it's not just a voice on the other end of the radio. You can really make all these things work. Absolutely. You know, and you know, I'm not trying to be snarky or anything else, but, you know, I used to tell my air wing all the time, part of it's, you know, pump up a little bit is as an air wing commander, if I want to project power, I don't really need anybody else. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I, yeah. I can marshal my team. We can load up some bombs. I can launch from a runway and I can go get a target. Right. And if I need tank, I can, mm-hmm. I can tank myself. You know, I have the capability. Right. You know, certainly there's limits to that. And, and I'm like, and again, I'm not, that's a, the reason I would bring that up is because what I would try to get across to my squadron CEOs is as they would get frustrated, as they get pulled in many different directions, right? Yeah. You know, Zulu, Zulu wants helicopters and double SC from the fighters with their lantern pods and, you know, and the, and the growlers out there listening to what's going on. And, you know, whiskey wants to make sure that nobody gets within, you know, X range of the carrier. And meanwhile, you got Quebec who's like, Hey, I, there's things out there. Can you go listen for me? You know, so yeah. you get pulled on those things. And, and so I said, to go, while I don't need anybody else to do my job, they need me to do theirs because what the air wing does is it makes everybody better, right? right? All of those assets working in conjunction and integrating across the rest of the strike group makes everybody better. And so, you know, that's why, you know, the other part of this, you know, air wing Fallon piece is it's really the last time 
that the airwing gets to focus on itself mm-hmm. where airwing gets to be, you know, I'd say a little bit selfish where I'm, I'm just, you know, the, the CAG, CAG comes out, the squadron CEOs come out going, this is the one time I get to focus on my unit and becoming tactically excellent, mm-hmm. right? At least striving to be there um, because, you know, whether it's, Tista before that, where you're where you're initially right. getting the band together, you know, yeah. that's the strike group, right? We're all going to get together. Let's get the band. Let's get the yeah, band back together. The band back together. That's right. And you know, and those, and those are exercises. Okay, do the comm links work? Do does the flight right. deck work? So the focus training isn't really there for the air wing. And then comp two X is, you know, that's the final exam before the strike group pushes away on deployment, right? And and so we there are a lot of a lot of stress that goes into that. Um, you know, boarding rates and long range strikes and, you know, everybody working together, straights train, all those things that, you know, we got to go out and, and execute. So Airwing Fallon is the one time that the Airwing gets to focus for five weeks. The air, the focus is solely on the Airwing and training air crew right. in a, uh, to a, to a high end fight and, and to the high end to the best, you know, maximize capabilities of their platforms. It's important for people to remember that a, a carrier Airwing is an immensely powerful organization. But a carrier strike group is more like the, the as you said the air wing enables that carrier strike group, but I don't think there's anything on earth quite like a carrier strike group. It's uh, I tell you, you know, it's you know, it's, I, I, certainly now you know, it, re- retired and reflecting, yeah. and you know, only the positives come back. You know, <laughs> I, I sit there and we always used to joke about you know, anytime you do an exercise, and you know, I'm, I'm sure you remember fondly as well. You know, anytime you do an exercise, it doesn't really happen unless you get the picture, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you realize, you know, so you know, ship steaming in formation, and uh, certainly the you know, my, the farewell picture, the the air wing in formation coming over the carrier right. and the and the escorts, you know. But it's one of those few times we're actually all closely right. together. Um, and when you realize the power, the firepower mm-hmm. that resides uh, and the capability that resides within a carrier strike group, it, it's it's really inspiring, awe-inspiring, and, and really quite staggering. And then so the training continuum that is necessary to get a strike group out the door, you know, we, nobody likes workups. Right. I mean, let's face it. Nobody, yeah. nobody enjoys workups. I used to tell people when workups start for the air wing, it's eight months to a year of the workup cycle to get ready and, and reward for doing well in the training cycle is an eight, is an eight month deployment, deployment right. on the yeah. backside. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, <right? laughs> so, so you're already gone for eight months to a year coming and going mm-hmm. from, you know, from home, from home station. Um, and that, you know, that's a drain on you as well. It's that, arguably uh, and, almost and you're worse re- sometimes on the home life could, to be coming and going than it is just to be gone. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, my, my family would be the first one to tell you that, you know, when, when dad finally went on deployment, it was great because at least he was gone for yeah, eight set months. A routine. Wasn't coming and going and, yeah, and the st- and the stresses that come with that, yeah. you know, the you know, yeah. air- airplanes breaking, parts supplies, right. uh, you know, av- av- aviators breaking, you know, whatever the case may be, and you know, and, and everything becomes a crisis as you get up to as you build up to pushing away from the pier, yeah. and, and and really when you finally get to that day and you're like, okay, we're on deployment, it's almost like, oh, okay, that's yeah, that's gone. That's now right. Just, we could just now I'm just focus on this, but look at the, that strike group and and for all the great things, and I, you know, yeah, we've got the pictures, and it it really is an immense. I don't know how to describe the emotion when you're watching everything gel together, but ships nowadays tend to operate independently, Yes. right? I mean, they operate in conjunction with one another, but if I'm on my Aegis cruiser or destroyer, the days of sort of doing div tax together to get on a gun line are gone. You just so you're operating in your own sector of, of the ocean. Yeah. And you can do that as part of this, of the carrier strike group and, and you're doing your job effectively. But to your point, of air wing Fallon sort of coming back to that is this air wing is a part, the arguably strongest, uh, most powerful part, 
But unlike a ship where, you know, I'm on that ship and I'm with my crew 360, you know, 365 days a year for the most part, working together all the time. You've got, what, 80 aircraft with one or two or maybe maybe five at most people in, in uh, men or women manning those aircraft. You have a lot of different pieces to put together. And uh, when you only have fit five weeks of airwing Fallon to focus on yourself, you know, that makes it all, all the more important and impressive, I think. It's absolutely. Good friend of mine uh, was, uh, we were CEOs together in Japan. I was uh, obviously a fighter squadron CEO. He had a, he had a destroyer. We were able to come full circle and, uh, and he was uh, Desron when I was CAG. Nice. Used to, yeah, it was great. So we used to have many in the late night philosophical conversations. <laughs> we shared the Jack and Jill suite as DCAG and uh, as deputy Commodore, you know, right there on 180th, oh, nice. yeah. on 180th Street there on the carrier. And so uh, many a late night philosophical discussion. But, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, even to take it out to a, a smaller scale, you know, whether it's a squadron CEO or an airline commander, but even at the squadron CEO level, right, if something big is going on on the ship, you know, where's the captain? Captain's probably going to be in combat or he's going to be on the bridge, right? For a squadron CEO or for a CAG, if something big's going down, I might be in the flight, but probably not. Right. Yeah. And so you, you know, whether it's, a, again, as a squadron CEO or an airline commander, that that training becomes so important because you have to know what your air crew are capable of. You have to know what their limits are and you have to understand and, and trust is so huge. Right. You, you have yeah. to. So airwing Fallon for the airwing commander, airwing Fallon becomes an opportunity to really evaluate where your air wing is. What are they capable of? What can they do? How far can you push them and how far can you stretch them? Because you get to watch them very closely operate in a very high stress environment, not a very high op tempo environment. And so, you know, not only is it the training that's important, are we getting the training done? But I said there, it's also an assessment of where do you stand as an organization? Because things will go wrong. I mean, it's yeah. Murphy's law, you know, how, how well do you know your air crew? How well do you know your squadrons right. and, and, and their capability, you know, and their, and just their basic, you know, maintenance capabilities and, and, and trust in the aircraft and the maintainers mm-hmm. to put them up there. And so, you know, it's, it's a, it's really a, I always do, it's a much broader scope, uh, certainly from the, from the commander's perspective uh, on what's going on, but the training is yeah. key and, and it's, and it's really building that integration, you know, you got to be able to integrate amongst yourselves, you know, as an air wing before, we take it to a much bigger level across the strike group when everybody's pulling for your assets, right? Um, right. And then, and how do we manage that? And you know, and yeah, it's great to you know, it's, it's one of the beauties about going back out to sea is you know, not only do you know, lo- love flying off aircraft carriers. I always sit there, there's something. I always sit there. I had a strange tick that you know, every time I step foot on aircraft carrier, I'm like, you know, I, I got there for pushing away or or out in the middle of the ocean and out there on the flight deck and going, man, I love this. Yeah. There's, there must be something inherently wrong with me because, uh, I mean, I just get excited, you know, I get excited being on, yeah. being on the carrier going, man, this is what a great way to do your job. That's right. But with that being said, integrating across the strike group becomes important. So, you know, the focus at, the focus at Fallon is to max is really the airline Fallon is, do you, you know, can we maximize all of the capabilities in your requisite aircraft? And now can we integrate those across the air wing to form a cohesive team that is, you know, very powerful and and very hard to defeat. I mean, it's, yep. you know, you're, you're putting that together. So, you know, that those five weeks are a crucible where you're really going to test the metal of an air wing from your most junior sailor mm-hmm. all the way up to your air wing commander. And, and you're testing that team end to end in a very stressful environment uh, and, and the best, you know, real world environment that we can simulate out there. And I'll tell you what, you know, uh, the F-16s in Fallon are key uh, simply due to the fact that something coming at you going Mach 1.5 definitely uh, gets your attention. 
I bet. Because, you know, we're, we're used to flying around at, you know, maximizing our, our capabilities. Hey, how many runs can I get out? Mm-hmm. How many iterations can I do? You know, Fallon, it's, you got one take off, fights on, here we go. Yeah. And, you know, and something's coming at you, when something's coming at you, Mach 1.5, you're like, your time compression yeah. uh, gets significantly, gets it's significantly just shorter. Just a little faster, I imagine. Yeah. Just a little bit. And so, you know, you, it's very easy to get the fox in the hen house. And uh, next thing you know, okay, where is this? You know, those, uh, that, that's certainly just the, just the, the air to air side. Yeah. Now you throw that particular airplane in there and now you throw uh, some, some simulated search yeah. air threats in there. Uh, it's a it's a game changer. Right. So you know that's really kind of the uh, the big piece of uh, Arrowing Fallon. Uh, you know, hopefully I didn't I didn't want to just get into a syllabus because I think there's a lot more to it. No, no, I think I think this is great because the philosophy of it. It's just like you talked about. We we could have talked about what's the syllabus of Arrowing Fallon, right? But that'd be a little bit like saying, okay, here's your target, right? Right. right. Instead, what we did was what's the effect we want to achieve. And we just talked through that. But so it's sort of a nice segue there with you talking about the speeds and uh, the distances. You know, there's challenges out there too, right? Now, it just in terms of airspace and ground space and money and time. So could you just sort of give us some of the challenges that you're having to uh, overcome to make these things happen as, as weapons ranges get longer and speeds get faster and resources get smaller, like on the national level, yeah. as resources get smaller. We'll talk about the first one. Uh, let's go to, we'll talk a big one first. And that's going to be obviously dollars, right? We are, uh, you know, I, I feel like I've spent 30 years of my career in the, uh, in the uh, era of ever constraining resources. <laughs> and I'm like, do, do we ever get to an era where they're never, where they're not constrained? But, you know, I think that's part right. of it. I think aviators and naval officers have been talking about for, you know, 240 some years. Yeah. So anyway, that, that aside, <laughs> you know, but the thing about aviation budget is it is, you know, when you talk about the aircraft that we fly, I mean, they're not cheap, right? right. A, a Super Hornet, when I started, was an $80 billion a piece aircraft, and that, that's gone up even more. Um, and they're amazing machines, right? Amazing mm-hmm. marvels of technology. And I throw in a JS ever, you know, an Air Force side, F-22, JSF, certainly, just amazing, amazing machines. And, and they're not cheap. And then when you look at the cost to fly them, flying airplanes is expensive. Everyone knows that. And I think what happens inside the Pentagon in an era of ever constraining resources, aviation budgets are big dollars and they become big targets. And so, again, I, I feel like I spent my entire career on the, uh, we're not asking you to do more with less. I want just be more well, efficient. I'm like, oh, you yeah, know, well, right. you're asking me to do more with less. But, you know, in, in many respects, we become victims of our own success with the naval aviation because the product we produce if you want to look at a Top Gun graduate, the product we produce, but even that combat wingman, you know, that, that first tour lieutenant coming out of their first fleet tour, that is one of the most tactical aviators on the planet. Those are the ones we send off the Top Gun and, and weapons and havoc and whatever to build that. And what happens with aviation is, you know, dollars in equals readiness out or dollars in equals TNRM out. Aviation can show you, hey, here's your Mark 1, Mod 1, Lieutenant, first fleet tour lieutenant. This is the product that you get. And, and Scott, let's face it, it's a phenomenal product, right? Yeah, those, you know, those, those young, those young lieutenants coming out of the fleet, that is a phenomenal product. I don't care who you are. And so we, we can demonstrate value for the dollars that are spent. We can demonstrate flight hours equals a certain readiness and the number of bombs dropped equals a certain level of readiness. And so I think that sometimes begs for people to come back and go, well, can you be more efficient though? You know, what if it's one less bomb? Yeah. What if it's one less flight hour? And so you know, we become the tar- victims of our own success. So that's always going to be a challenge, you know, and, and there's always going to be the folks, which is why I will continue to put stomp the live LVC, the L cannot mm-hmm. be silent, right? It's L got, cannot we be got silent, it. right. 
we have to, we still have to fly live aircraft. There'll be compromises made and we're going to get a lot more bang for the buck in those lives with the, with, with capabilities coming on down the line. But with that being said, there's, there's always going to be that constant fight for dollars and, and, you know, and how much do we take away from squadrons that aren't going on deployment in the next year? But how much readiness are they going to lose? How much proficiency right. are they going to lose? And how much more do I have to catch them up? I think those are all valid. You've got to climb that hill on the other side of that valley if you, you do. if you rob Peter to pay Paul. Yeah, I, you know it's a it's a perishable skill set. I mean, it, it really is. I've you know I was fortunate to fly you know all but about twenty two months in a day in my career, um, and even as I got older, I'm like, man, this is this it's hard, right? It's not it's not easy. To your point, we make it look easy. It's not. Um, so there's so there's that piece of it. The next piece. You know, we start talking about peer competitors and we'll, we'll start talking about the ranges involved. You know, there aren't any ranges in the United States big enough to be able to properly execute this training. You know, the Fallon Range Complex, you know, what we've done and what they've done here in conjunction with the base and the region and the FAA, you know, to maximize the airspace around Fallon has been actually quite remarkable what we, what we can get. You know, service to 50,000 feet and we use, we use all of it. Uh, you know, basically from, you know, Fallon itself basically goes from essentially uh, just east of Lake Tahoe all the way to the Utah border um, and then north and south about 80 miles with Fallon as a center point. To the north of that is the approach corridor to San Francisco. To the south of that is the approach corridor to LAX. So we can't really expand north or south very much. Yeah. Um, you really can't go east or west very much either. Um, you start bumping into other airspace. So airspace becomes a challenge when you start talking about the ranges we're dealing with today. So uh, at the same time, our weapons have become much more complicated, and, and obviously we build weapons so we can enjoy some sort of standoff, right? So I don't have to drive as close to the threat and become much more vulnerable. Right. Well, guess what? Our ranges were designed for dumb bombs, right? The uh, circle the wagons, take your aircraft, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to offset this many, you know, this many, this many miles. I'm going to roll in at a 45-degree angle. I'm going to put the pipper on the target. Um, there it is. There's my release point. I pull... And, and gravity takes the bomb the rest of the way. That you know, we don't have weapons like that anymore in our weapons. We're talking, you know, extreme ranges. So how do you train to that? How do you get that live end end piece of that? And so you know, there's a an ongoing discussion with congressional side of the house, um, obviously the DOD, Fallon, local local authorities. What what is our opportunity to expand some of the ranges out in Fallon so that we can actually train to a real world employment opportunity? Um, because it goes back to my comment, humans are second only to dogs and habit patterns. And if I'm going to train to improper techniques, then when push comes to shove and things are going wrong and my brain's going to shrink up to this size, I need mm-hmm. to be able to sit there and go, okay, I can't employ wrong. Right. Yeah. Oh, my old high school wrestling coach used to say all the time, he goes, practice does not make, make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. Cause if you mm-hmm. practice it wrong, when the time comes to do it, you you, do you're, you're going to do it wrong. That's right. So, you know, lots of lots going on with the Fallon Range Training Complex modernization. There's a, a big push. You know, the Navy wants to withdraw basically twice as much land. It's already withdrawn. And I say withdrawn, it's not, you know, we're not bombing that area. We just, we want to preserve that capability um, in the pristine environment, you know, to operate, right? Uh, it's very, it's very dark and uh, it's very dark in Northern Nevada. Um, we like it that way yeah. and it's good for training. So trying to keep, uh, you know, there's certainly uh, lots of, you know, there's certainly mining activity out here. There's certainly geothermal activity out here. 
that uh, certainly supports the state of Nevada. Um, and the Navy's worked really, really hard to make sure that we don't discount the economic opportunities for the state to expand and, and do what the state needs to do while we can still preserve a pristine at- training atmosphere. The other part is going to go with the local authorities, right? Uh, whether it's the Native American uh, tribes out here and, and lands they consider sacred, uh, which is their home, their home territories, uh, whether it's uh, the folks of the Patagonias of the world that want to go out and explore the great uh, vastness of the, the Nevada desert. You know, I think the Navy does a very good job of preserving that and pro- still providing access, right? We don't, we don't want people on, right. on, on live ranges, but you know, please enjoy the rest of what Nevada has to offer, you know? Um, and so right. there's been a really good, sometimes you don't get the, the press that is necessary uh, sometimes from all the work the Navy has done to make that happen, but it's, it's ongoing and the dialogue continues to be very, very positive, but the, you know, really there's, there's encroachment by the FAA, you know, the airlines want to get more direct, right? Uh, time, fuel, time and fuel is money. Right. And so if I can cut a corner and get to San Francisco faster from the East coast, then I'm going to want to. So, um, so there's, there's that, there's that kind of encroachment that the Navy's trying to defend off in many respects. And, and as is the air force, you know, in, inside continental United States. And then there's also uh, the electronic spectrum, right? right? You know, five, five G, everybody wants five G, wants their five G cell phones, right? That's uh, that, you know, I get my information faster and it's, you know, no delay and everything else, but guess what? That five G spectrum starts to encroach on, uh, on what the military needs to use to train to mm-hmm. and some of those things. So, you know, it's not just airspace and it's not just space over the you know space on the ground it, it, right. now we're starting now we're starting to get into some of those spectrum discussions as well so yeah. you know we have it, to it's, it's the domain you know that's really yes. why i think that term comes about it's it's a full spectrum domain that we're talking about it is and and i think it's sometimes it's very easy for folks to be callous go oh, well the military doesn't care they're going to get their way and, and that's not that's not true at all i mean right. I, we are also customers <laughs> in many respects or right. users right so you know we take that seriously and work very very hard to make sure that that the compromises are made so it's, it's a challenge uh it really is and it's a challenge that uh, certainly the, the the PRC does not have to endure, right? Uh, with, with their former right. government and and the space that they have, and, and some of our peer competitors don't quite have some of the challenges that the U- U.S. military has. But it is definitely right. a consideration, and you know, and I think for folks out there that are quick to accuse uh, accuse the military of land grabs or domain grabs, you know, sometimes I said, "Go, hey, just you know, ask ask somebody." Sometimes, you know, certainly, probably the more senior guys, the lieutenants, are like, "Dude, I just need to take off and go." Just just tell me where I can't fly into, right? But uh, you know, there's there's certainly some some discussions going on, and I certainly out here in Fallon, it has been an ongoing effort, and it was certainly one of the focus areas for the three plus years I was the deputy out here, uh, being engaged in those conversations. And I know future discussions on the uh, on the on the series here will get into and how we're going to mitigate some of that. But it, it's yeah. it's still going to be a challenge, and, and we got to be careful that we don't lose it. You know, uh, yeah. our fear is as we continue as we continue to give things up, what we know we're never going to get it back. So there is at some point we draw, you know, the, the military, the navy draws a line in the sand, going, I can't. I can't give up anymore. Yeah. I mean, that I think that's a truism for the Navy, for the military. Most of the time when you give something up, you're never going to get it back. Or if you do, it's a painful learning curve. I'll, I'll say that from a from an organization that had to rebuild the riverine capability after taking it from the Marines after it was dormant coming out of Vietnam. I mean, it you don't just snap back. Well, you know, you talk about resources, right? JCAS, you know, joint, yeah. you know, the joint close air support, right? There's certainly folks out there and I might be accused of being one of those guys on occasion. This just goes, why are we still doing this? Right. Yeah. You know, why, why are we still talking about nine lines and circling the wagons? But to your views that they on the head, it, it's a, it's a perishable skill set. And if yeah. we lose that, we, we may never be able to rebuild that. So you'll have to train in some capacity to, you know, in, in a little bit to make sure that we still know how to do that because, you know, certainly and as a former 
Ford Air Controller Airborne, uh, I certainly, you know, and a, and a qualified JTAC back in the day, I certainly understand that if you start talk, putting bombs in close proximity to friendly troops, um, you better know what you're doing. Um, right. So we can't we can't lose that skill set either. So I think uh, hopefully that answered your question on airspace. It's you know, a oh, little bit of a nebulous answer, but no, I don't think so. I think it's a it's a challenge. There's not enough, and then we didn't even you know really touch on the fact that while you send guys out to the Pacific to practice the maritime strike, no matter what we do, that range is never going to truly integrate surface ships, submarines, and aircraft because it it's land. It's just not, you know, this is just yet another constraint. And as a, you know, as a CO in Japan, you know, the ability to train, you know, over there is, is very difficult. And, and the other parts, again, to kind of put a bow on this whole thing, what's really critical about air wing Fallon, let's get back to that, you know, when the, when the air wing departs air wing Fallon, they are probably, certainly tactically speaking, you know, um, that's the best they're ever going to be. Mm-hmm. So the day after they leave air wing Fallon, their readiness and their tactical capability starts to gracefully degrade, right. uh, hopefully gracefully degrade, but really, because there's no way to train out at sea, right? We, mm-hmm. There's no ranges out there to train. There's no bandits out there to train. You know, you, you try to put piece together, you know, some internal training across a strike group if, uh, if you can, but the other part you have to be careful of too is, just, you know, as soon as we get across the international date line, we always have escorts that we didn't yep. push away from within San Diego. <laughs> um, they like to, they like to make sure they like to make sure they keep close tabs right. on us. And so uh, they're watching everything that we do. So, you know, you, you lose opportunities to train to a high end fight, right. you know, that venue because people are watching. You don't want to show your hand. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so you again, your, your ability, your tactical prowess, uh, begins to degrade the day after you leave airwing foul. So that's why it's even more important to make sure that uh, you press them as much as you can while they're here. And then uh, they take that back out for comp 2X and then on deployment. Uh, and then there's training opportunities, you know, it's it's really a top off, uh, but you never really, you, it's really going to be hard to get back up on the step. Oh, but again, absolutely. Future, yeah. future capabilities will hopefully make that a little bit easier and, and hopefully maybe get you up a little bit higher uh, as we go down range. So. Right. Yeah, I, I think we've been spoiled a little bit over the past 20 years in that, you know, we've been able to sort of take this this blinders on view of war that for aviation, that it's support to the ground troops. And so you you maintained proficiency, if not got better while on deployment, right? Because you're doing it for real. Right. And that's, you know, you and I are just old enough to remember getting commissioned right after the Cold War ended. And yeah, that's it's so much more than that. Yeah. And those targets, remember, you know, in, in this day and age that those potential target sets that we may go after, they're shooting back and they're very, very, they're very, very capable. Right. Um, and so, you know, that, that changes the game significantly. So there's no more, hey, I'm at the top of my game and that's going to be able to carry me through deployment. Right. I think it's a case of it maybe really can have to continue to stay sharp. And, and, and certainly we're doing things within uh, the Navy and naval aviation to get there. Another part of the interview with uh, Air Force F-15 Wizzo Paco, and we were talking about Desert Storm sort of being the pinnacle for the Air Force in terms of size, capability, readiness, age of the fleet. And I really think that to some extent, our success in Desert Storm and since then, and I'm talking about tactical, I'm not getting into the political realm or anything like that. Right. We've really sort of made it look really easy. And I shouldn't say we, I mean, I was, I wasn't there in desert storm, but you know what I mean? We've made it look really, really easy, even though it's really, really hard. But I think along the way, especially uh, again, I don't want to get political, but people who aren't in uniform do forget that for the past 20 years, we've high end ships, aircraft, definitely guys on the ground. This doesn't apply to, they haven't been shot back at. You know, to your point, you know, we're not facing, right. we thought that's what we're going to face in Desert Storm and we didn't, or we we overcame it. 
And so I think that bears remembering that uh, it does. The next the next fight is not going to be what we've watched for the past 20 years. No, and I think it's going to be, you know, and God forbid, if we ever get there, I will sit there and tell you, I think uh, what what will come out of that will be, it'll be devastating. Um, it'll be devastating for American society because we've become so very accustomed right. to, we don't lose people, right? You know, again, not to get political, but, you know, we lost 13 mm-hmm. Marines on the Afghanistan withdrawal. And that's, you know, right. you know, still, we're still talking about it today, right? Um, we're, we're talking about, you know, there's potential in a, and a peer fight right. that we're, we're talking about losing ships, right? We're talking, you know, Polk, you know, 5,000 people on an aircraft carrier. I mean, that's in that, that those kind of losses will be, will be very, very yeah. tough to uh, comprehend yeah. um, back here in CONUS if, uh, if, if in more of that to happen. So yeah, we, to your point, we've become victims of our own success and, and that is, you know, there's nothing wrong with maintaining that kind of standard, but I would sit there and go sometimes uh, in a future fight, that standard might yeah. be very, very difficult. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been great, and I really appreciate the time you gave us here tonight, Sonic. Anything uh, we've missed, anything you want to bring out about Airwing Fallon or sort of readiness in general? I think, uh, you know, the genius, uh, it's kind of put a bow on the whole thing. And uh, the genius of the whole thing is uh, the, uh, the the synergy that comes from having all of the weapon schools in one place. And, you know, uh, on my way out the door, one of the things to say, you know, uh, obviously Nautic was started in 1996. I'd said there, you know, during the during the time it took 25 years for uh, NSOC and Nautic to finally get to where it wanted to, what what an ultimate goal was, which is just to really bring those weapon schools together. You know, even the two times I was there previously, there were definitely some stovepipes in there. But what I see now is I see, you know, is, and maybe it just has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the threat has changed. And so that has forced significant integration across the weapon schools. You know, the uh, the weapon schools now get out and participate in uh, the, the weapon school integration uh, phase at the Nellis. So uh, Havoc, is, that's, a, that's for the Growler guys, that is a captain event for them. The, the Cause guys, that is a captain event for them. Uh, the Strike, you know, the Airwing training folks, Strike at, in the, in, at Nautic, go down there and fly in that. So, you know, not only are we integrating in Fallon across where well, we're, we're integrating across with our with our joint coalition partners as well, um, you know. And again, you know, as the, as the threat has expanded and our resources have become constrained, we've become very very good at really trying to force that integration. I think you know, it's great to see that uh, we all understand that uh, we're no no one's winning this fight on their own. And if we don't if we don't understand right. if we don't understand how to work together and maximize our capabilities, then we're going to lose. I mean, that's 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 just the nature of the beast. And I think. You know what what has gone on at Nautic over the, certainly the past five years or so has been uh, not just evolutionary but probably in many respects revolutionary and it's great to see yep. and make no mistake about it uh, you know the heartbeat of that entire organization are the uh, the tactical savages that wear rubber tracks on their shoulders absolutely and ain't the guys wearing Oakleys or uh, or Eagles um, it is the uh, it is the dedicated professionals uh, those young aviators yep. um, on the Top Gun staff on the Havoc staff on the Sea Wolf staff cause. Who uh, you know? Who eat and breathe this every single day? And you know, with the holidays coming up here right around the corner, you know, I'm pretty sure the Nautic commander and the, the department heads are going to be Thanksgiving Day having to kick kick lieutenants out because they'll be in there working hard because yeah. that's what it means to them. So, you know, that's that dedication. It is. And so, you know, if you want to sit there and go, what's what's the the bow on Nautic? It's it's those uh, those hardcore lieutenants that uh, are are making sure that uh, the fleet has everything they need and uh, and all the capabilities that they can maximize from their aircraft and putting out quality products so uh you know in the end when push comes to shove we win we win and that's uh, that's what they're all about that's the bottom line all right thank you sonic i really appreciate it and i think you know we'll be reaching out in the future sounds good let me know uh 
Love, love these, uh, love, love to have these uh, conversations. They're great. All so right. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Scott. Thanks. Appreciate Simon. you having me on board. All Absolutely. Right. You bet. Bye. All right. Now that we've heard what the mindset is behind training naval aviators for deployment, let's jump in with Brian Casmo Harris to learn how the Army prepares for combat at JRTC, one of two Army Joint Training Centers in the continental United States. All right. Welcome back, everyone. We're back with Casmo. And we're talking about Army Op 4 and large-scale exercises with the Army. Welcome back, Casmo. Hey, thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone's just joining us, and if you are, I really hope you go back and start with Episode 1. It'll give you a much better picture of everything we're talking about. But just in case, can you give us the thumbnail sketch of yourself and your career, Casmo? Yeah, sure. Uh, started in the Army back uh, very late 90s. Uh, I was an armor officer on tanks, did some time with mortars, and then went into Army aviation as a warrant officer. I flew OH-58 Delta Kiowa Warriors, and then when that aircraft was uh, put out to pasture, I transitioned over to the H-64D and E. So yeah, and I retired after 22 years. All right. Awesome. So as I said, today we're talking about Army Op 4 and large-scale training. So let's start with the Op 4 piece of that. And we've talked about how fixed-wing aviation does Op 4. And there's all sorts of different options and opportunities there. But the whole nature of the threat for Army aviation is different. You're, you're not so much focused on an air-to-air threat. It's different. And the way you guys model it is different. And the, the constraints are, are different. So let's just jump in. What is op for in the Army sense? Yeah, so like you said, the air-to-air aspect of helicopters, while, while it does exist, I honestly, I don't know of any event where it happened where a helicopter and another helicopter got into a shooting match. I know there was a helicopter that shot down a, uh, I think it was an AN-2 Colt during Vietnam, mm-hmm. happened to run across it at night and, and the door gunner shot it down. But other than that, yeah, it's not really a, a consideration. We don't, uh, unfortunately, we don't get to to pull G's and breathe hard into masks <laughs> and uh, fight with other helicopters. You see that sometimes in the movies. The threat for us is almost decidedly uh, from the surface. When I first came into Army aviation, the the Kiowa did carry stingers. In fact, some of the ones that I flew in training had the training stinger launcher on there. But that was a self defense thing. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like aircraft were going out looking for other aircraft. That was you know, if a package a, a group of aircraft were going out, you Flight know, one or two might have stingers in case they did run across some sort of threat. Uh, we did learn how to evade from fixed Yesterday, wing. I know today, that started to come back actually as I was leaving. Uh, the operational force, there there was some talk about, you know, it, down to the level of, hey, you know, don't put your white uh, map board up on the dash because it, it can give away your position if an aircraft is overhead. So as, as we started to get out of the, the Iraq, uh, Afghanistan construct, started looking at that near peer threat again, uh, those, those types of little considerations, which, you know, maybe sound silly on their face, but uh, in reality do matter. But yeah, so the threat for us really is uh, surface based for the most part. And then depending on the severity of the threat, meaning is it peer, you know, peer near peer threats or is it insurgent counterinsurgency type operations? So op four, when we talk large scale, uh, the army typically has three, three locations, I should say. We do large scale training. So that's the National Training Center out at Fort Irwin, California. Uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, where I worked for a couple of years, uh, and then the uh, 
gosh, now I can't think of the name, but it's a joint training facility out in Hollenfels, Germany, uh, JMRC. Mm-hmm. I can't think off the top of my head what that stands for. And those are the three locations where large scale operations go on. So you can really just picture it as about three or 4,000 people playing laser tag together uh, in the swamp in Louisiana, of course, in the desert at Fort Irwin. Uh, Hollenfels, I've never been there, so I won't talk too much about it. I have done a rotation as a uh, as a blue uh, force unit at NTC when I was a tank guy. Uh, I flew as blue four in JRTC, and I was a observer controller at JRTC for two years, where I was the uh, brigade aviation officer OC. So I oversaw the 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 infantry brigades aviation planning cell and coordination and then i was the aviation task force uh op- operations officer oc so i would oversee the operations officer and his staff at the uh, aviation task force level so i kind of got to see a little bit of everything those f- those locations are really designed for the brigade combat team so that's the the army's you know infantry or armor brigade combat team so you're looking at you know battalions of infantry mechanized infantry light infantry tanks you know that type of formation and then when they go to these uh events they typically bring along an aviation task force so the op for i'll speak more about jrtc just because again i worked there uh they have a battalion an infantry battalion can't remember the designation but they were they were called geronimo and uh, these are guys who basically lived and breathed how to fight as the old kind of Soviet style uh, template. So they had a lot of old vehicles that they kind of did the viz mod. So they made it look like a BMP or they made it look like a, a T, you know, whatever. Right. Um, they even had some older, older vehicles, uh, old Soviet vehicles. Right. Viz mod being visual modifications. Exactly. And then they would wear different uniforms. Heck, they'd even grow beards and stuff. So they so they very much looked the part. There was no confusing them with the other side. So they would operate every, you know, every rotation. There was a rotation basically every month. So they were constantly in the field. Of course, they got very good at what they did. Of course, they also had, you know, many reps on the same piece of terrain. So they knew where all the hiding spots were. They knew where all the routes were. So they so they were very good augmented by the fact that they have very good uh, situational awareness and understanding of the environment that they're in. Uh, from the air side, that's where it got kind of weird because, you know, they, they would have um, uh, emitters. They would have vehicles that could emit signals that, you know, might mimic certain types of equipment. And then they would have their own air. So they would have, there, there was a, basically a detachment of army helicopters that flew, uh, they started to fly uh, LUHs, the, the Lakotas. And they were vismodded to look like Heinz and things like that, even though they're much, much smaller. Um, so they would use those to conduct uh, attacks and uh, air assault operations. But we were very careful in, in managing those fights that we, we kept our helicopters away from their helicopters. Uh, so we didn't even allow for any sort of helicopter versus helicopter engagement to occur because, one, it's not really a doctrinal thing. It's not something that guys are necessarily trained on. But two, it, it's a safety consideration. So we try to right. keep those, you know, those guys separated. So I say it's kind of funky, you know, when we talk about these events because the Army... Unlike just about every other branch, you know, aviation is a very big part of army uh, of the army, but it isn't necessarily a driving force the way that you see in the Navy and obviously in the Air Force and even in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, the army very much likes stuff on the ground. It very much wants and needs the aviation, but it has sometimes struggled with how to properly train and support 
that aviation. And so you would see that struggle play out when these units would would come to the uh, the training centers because they're they're sometimes asked to do things that they haven't really had a chance to practice, and so they're kind of doing it for the first time. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, struggle and learning there. The training when you get to these uh, when you get to these locations, you know, it's a lot of reactionary training. You know, because again, you're being driven by the ground force. The ground force commander, he's a he's going to be a colonel at JRTC. He's almost always going to be an infantry colonel with his background. So they're going to want to do things a certain way. Um, and this is not a hit on infantry guys, but they think at a different speed than helicopters, right? Just mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, tank guys think at a different speed than they really do. So they look at things a little bit differently. And that sometimes is a challenge uh, for the for the aviation side. But they're doing a lot of reactionary type stuff like, OK, we're waiting for the figure out what the ground force wants to do. OK, they want to they want to do an air assault. OK, well, now we got to plan this quick air assault. One thing that we tried to do, uh, we were somewhat successful, just depending on the schedule, is try to pull the aviation task force away from that fight when there was a lull. When when we knew that the, you know, we 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 had the script, right? I mean, we knew what kind of battles were coming right. and and what the infantry brigade should be doing on day three and day six and things like that. So we try to f- try to um, schedule different types of training events that the aviation guys could do. And so one of those was uh, there's an old Air Force uh, like bombing range. I can't think of the name of it. It was it was further just further east of Fort Polk. And they had some old like they have emitters like, you know, SA-8s and, and things like that types of emitters. And uh, we would give them, you know, a, a very aviation centric mission where they would have to coordinate for support, EW support and artillery support and things like that. And, uh, and these emitters were out there and they would have cameras uh, tracking the aircraft. So, so we could go back and play back for the air crew when they had done this, this mission, which was like a deep attack. You know, we could actually show them like, hey, this is where the emitter started to pick you up. This is what you were doing. And here you are on camera. We can see you. You know, you're not low enough. You're not, you're not down in the trees enough. Um, so we could do things like that, which was pretty unique. Like I never saw that at the training, at the unit level, like when we were doing unit yeah. training, you never got something like that unless you, you could go over to the air defense guys and maybe you could work out some sort of, some sort of deal where they would go to the field and do that. But it was very difficult to, to balance training plans like that. But, you know, I say we tried to do that, you know, one, it was an air force bombing range. So sometimes the air force was coming in to do stuff. So you couldn't get the range Two, sometimes the, uh, you know, the infantry brigade would, would, would pull a crazy Ivan on you and want to do something different that you weren't planning. And now suddenly you're, you're pulled into their planning cycle. Mm-hmm. So I guess what I'm really kind of unwinding this to say is that those centers, while they are great training facilities and they, and they do a lot of great stuff, they do a lot of great stuff for the ground side. Mm-hmm. For the air side, it's, it's almost like you're kind of sitting at the end of the table and you're just getting whatever scraps you can out of it. And you're trying to make the best out of what you can. So when we talk about Op 4 training from a aviation support standpoint, there really isn't anything. Um, and that's, you know, to kind of jump ahead, you were talking about the, with, with challenges. That is the challenge is how do we train our Army aviation force and give them the time to, to do these things that we're going to expect them to do? And we saw it a lot uh, at, when I was at JRTC because we were slowly pulling out of the coin fight. You know, deployments were drying up. And so now guys were suddenly looking over at Europe, you know, and this is pre-Ukraine, but not too pre. And you could start, a, you know, you could start hearing the war drums beating. And uh, there would be a lot of different types of missions that if things kicked off, you know, large scale in Europe, that 
uh, particularly Apaches, but but all across the aviation Army aviation spectrum would have to be doing that they have not been doing. I mean, you have an entire generation right. uh, of pilots who haven't had to do some of these things. I mean, there's things that I did as a Kiowa guy, very junior, and then that was it. Never did mm-hmm. them again. And so there's a whole bunch of dudes out there that just have never had to do that, never had to think about it. And so when we would present it to them at JRTC, I'm like, okay, you're going to do a, a platoon, you know, four H-64 deep attack onto this, you know, SAM site. And you're going to have artillery and EW, and but you need to time it. When do you want it? Like we'd give them very narrow windows. Mm-hmm. Like I'd give them like, you know, five minutes. You get five minutes at EW. You know, it's probably not realistic. But I the point was to force them to really think about their timing and say, okay, I have to be on the objective at this time because if I'm not, I'm going to lose the EW support, you know, and we would shut off the emitters and things like that. Um, They, they, they never had to do that before. And so that was the struggle uh, of trying to do that. NTC, I think they have a similar type setup uh, for like a radar facility. I'm not sure again about Hollenfels, but that in a nutshell is the large scale. What's the word I'm looking for? Sort of deliberate, like no kidding. Everyone knows what it is training Mm -hmm. that goes on at the army level and then you would have you know smaller events at the unit level uh back at your home station so uh particularly uh the brigades the the brigade combat teams you know they would go to the field for a couple weeks and they would do all types of collective training because when they go to ntc when they go to jrtc it's really not supposed to be a training event I always joke that it was an absolute training event uh, because they had never done this before. But, you know, it was supposed to be a validation exercise. It's supposed to be show up and do all the things that you've been training for for the past year in your training cycle. Um, Doesn't always play out that way, particularly on the aviation side. Uh, So at home station, but they do have these training events. They're supposed to go to the field. You know, I've done it as an aviation guy supporting them out uh, in the local area. And then at that point, what you would have for an op four is typically you would just take either from like another brigade or something like that. And, you know, the guys would, you know, draw different types of uniforms from like the uh, the training support center or things like that, you know. But you wouldn't have near the robust level of, of Viz mods, right. uh, pyrotechnics. And they they certainly wouldn't have um, aircraft probably supporting them. Because again, we're going back to that construct of there. A lot of times, all we were doing is a lot of that coin stuff. So I think at the unit level, at least when I was still in the unit level, being able to replicate a near peer fight at home, it was not something that was necessarily going on. Right. So to go back to a couple of terms, the coin is counterinsurgency. So to your point, that's what we've been doing for 20 years. So we have an entire generation that isn't even really steeped in the idea of we're going to go fight a major, yeah. major peer level conflict. Like, you know, a guy my age, you know, the Cold War's ending just as I'm getting commissioned, but I you know grew up on thinking about the fold a gap and reforger to get forces yeah. to Germany. We don't even have that frame of reference now. Right. Because of course the nineties was the peace dividend and, and 2001 on is, is whatever you want to call, you know, GWAT or whatever yeah. else. Uh, so the other thing I'll say, so the, Observer controller, am I using that right? OC yeah. is we talked with Sonic about, you know, the white force mm-hmm. up at Fallon, sort of a similar role, right? You're developing the exercises, you're evaluating how the force does. You are the ones who are bringing sort of the educational training value. Am I, is that? Yeah. So with the, the technical term, it used to be observer controller. And I think we always still kind of called ourselves that, but it, it, it had morphed, of course, to a kinder, gentler term. It was the OCT. So it was a, a observer coach trainer. Okay. And so our, our goal was to 
yes, observe, but to coach and then train if necessary, which <laughs> unfortunately yep. it typically turned into training quite a bit. Uh, but coaching and, you know, giving them little prompts like, hey, you know, I, maybe don't do this. You right. know, like for me, I went through, I want to say 13 rotations, you know, by by number eight. I already knew what was going to happen, mm-hmm. right? I would tell, I would tell the the you know the ops officer when they showed up. I said, "Hey, you know, you're about to send out a FARP. You should probably make sure it has ammo." Yeah, <laughs> you know, because you're a Blackhawk guy and you're not thinking about Hellfires. Right. Like, I got it. You know that that's fine because they would come as a task force construct. So you'd have a a lift battalion. So you have a lift battalion staff who's used to thinking about lift battalion stuff, and now you've given them a company of Apaches. Well, they're not thinking about ammo necessarily, and I and I tell you, almost every single time. I would have to make that reminder, and then I would come in a couple days later. I already knew the FARP had gone out. I already knew there weren't any ammo, you know, weren't any hellfires, and I would just come in and say, "Hey, you know, how, how's your FARP?" You yeah. know, and they'd always, "Well, you know, we forgot the hellfires, you know, so we're sending out <laughs> another convoy." Or just little things like, you know, far. I love to pick on FARPs, uh, forward arming refu- refueling points. We, I think we talked about yeah. it in the last episode, but uh, you know, a place where a helicopter lands to get gas and ammo. That's just another one of those great training events. Uh, I love FARPs because it it encaptures so much of logistics planning, tactical planning, uh, operational planning, because, you know, without the FARP, how are you going to get the helicopters deep enough to do this attack Mm -hmm. on this armor battalion, you know, that's that you're trying to interdict or whatever? You know, just the timing of operating the FARP. You know, I remember one in particular telling these guys like, you know, Geronimo knows everywhere to put a FARP. They know all the fields. Yeah. Do not activate this FARP until you need it. Well, guess what? They forgot to give somebody a radio so the, you know, at their brigade headquarters. So the brigade headquarters sends a truck out to the FARP, and they fly a Blackhawk out there like five hours before they yeah. use the FARP. Well, guess who saw the Blackhawk yeah. land in a field and you know did some map analysis and said, oh, I bet there's a FARP there. Then sends up a drone, looks at it, says, sure enough, and then it, it gets wiped off. So... You know, those are those things where you try to coach them and then eventually it just becomes a teachable moment of, hey, I told you so. Uh, but that that was our role is to try to guide them to that point and, and hopefully not take over. I was you know personally very hands off. I, I knew OCs who very much like to drive the train, you know, and tell them, hey, you really need to do this. You really need to do that. You know, my joke was, I don't care if they set up their battle positions facing the wrong direction. Like, that's how you learn. Right. I don't, you know, yeah, you I'm not going to stop mistakes. you unless it's a safety. That's right. It's unless it's a safety issue. I'm not going to tell you nothing. Cause I'm gonna let you, I'm, I'm gonna give you hints, but I'm not going to tell you how to do anything because you know, maybe, maybe you'll pull it off, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're going to learn through making your own mistakes. Yeah. So to compare and contrast a little bit and, you know, correct me where need be, cause I come from a Navy centric background, obviously, Sure. you know, the army is clearly pretty proficient at what it does. Now I say that there's peaks and there's valleys and everyone's readiness, but I, I think <laughs> we've shown as a, as a fighting organization, the U.S. military is pretty proficient. That being said, you know, we've talked now about the Air Force and we've talked about the Navy and, and in the Air Force, as you said earlier, you know, the thrust is aviation. Navair is a very prominent player in the Navy. But to your point, Army aviation, you know, second fiddle may be too strong a term, but it doesn't have quite the weight. Of pull, like you said. So I think we're hearing about how different that can be in trying to integrate. So, you know, my point in saying there's ups and downs is, you know, I feel pretty comfortable in saying from my observations, all things being equal and where's the focus on coin or major combat operations. But the Army ground forces know how to fight. 
Yeah. Right. And Army Aviation knows how to fight, but it sounds like there's still an evolution going on of integrating those those fights. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there. So the first one, and I, I may have even said this last time we talked, but you know, I think there's a misconception in people when they look at military aviation and they think that that's literally all we do, right? We just come into work and just fly every single day. Um, that could not be further from the truth. One, there's not enough aircraft. Two, there's not enough gas. Three, there's not enough maintenance. So, you know, maybe you get a couple flights a week if you're having a good week. So already when you look at that, those numbers, that's hard to maintain any sort of proficiency in flying the aircraft. And, and granted, keep in mind these numbers, you look at like reports from China and, and Russia where, you know, the amount of flight hours those guys are getting, you know, ours blows theirs out of the water. So, it, and, but even with that being said, they're, st- they're still relatively low on our end. You know, we have minimums that we're supposed to reach. It's not uncommon for a guy to have to get a, a waiver for, you know, because he didn't make his minimums for, for the semi-annual period. Uh, which I think, you know, it's been a while since I've had to care about that stuff, but I, th- I think it was around like 90 hours or something. So 90 hours in six months and guys were struggling to get that. So when you put that in the construct of not just maintaining tactical proficiency, but proficiency in the aircraft in and of itself, you can see that you start running out of time and being proficient in flying the aircraft and fighting the aircraft is one thing. Then you got to be proficient at flying and fighting with another aircraft you know, as a group of two. And then again, when we go back to that larger construct of near peer, well, now maybe it's a four ship. I could probably count on one hand how many times I flew a training mission uh, with a four ship of my own type of aircraft. Like, yeah, I flew, you know, with lots of Blackhawks doing, doing air assaults and stuff, but they were, they were their element and it was me and my buddy. But, but trying to go out as a group, a large group of aircraft and trying to control that it's not, it's not that it's hard, but it's one of those things where you, the first time you want to do it is not at night in bad guy right. land. You know, you want to practice it and be proficient. And I just, I never saw it because again, it wasn't really our focus, but we can see how quickly our focus has to change. You know, the, you talk about the pivots to the Pacific and all that stuff. Those pivots happen fast. And, uh, and I think that there's a, a misconception even among some some leadership in the army and i i'm retired so i feel comfortable saying <laughs> right. this i think there's a misconception at that higher level that they think that well you know th- they they can do that we just need to give them a little bit of time no you need to give them a lot yeah. more time you need to give them a lot more resources and you need to kind of leave them alone and i think that was one of my fundamental complaints as an aviator in the army is a lot of times we were getting asked to support things and it's like okay i'm i'm a training aide for this. I'm not actually gaining any real proficiency at something. You want me to come to this point with this is something we do a lot. Go to a firing point and just do racetrack patterns and shoot rockets at the same target because the infantry guys were going through and they were getting reps on how to call for, you know, an airstrike or they were, you know, going through the motions to do an assault and the helicopters would be supporting. Yeah, but for us it's hitting the same two or three targets. It's hearing the same radio call. And so those are great events for very junior pilots because you get to put them in the seat and let them shoot. But there's no team proficiency. I can send one aircraft out there and fill that role. But what am I really getting out of it? But then I put a ton of hours on the aircraft to do this one thing. And so those types of things happen a lot. And I think sometimes we put it up on the scoreboard and say, well, there's training being conducted. Uh, but but the quality of the training is is in question. Yeah. Talking about the Navy cycle, it's just interesting for me to compare and contrast because, you know, talk to Sonic and the air wing goes to air wing Fallon. And he pointed out that 
that is really their only time to work as a dedicated air wing on aviation things. Yeah. But at least they do have that. And then we go to and do something called Com2X, that is the, the uh, carrier strike group afterwards. And then the air wing sort of becomes a service provider, which is a weird thing to, to say about probably the, the most powerful striking force in the strike group. Sure. But they're a, a force provider. But it's also that's that's sort of accomplishing the goal of what you're talking about with uh, JRTC and NTC. That's where the whole strike group comes together. It's unfortunate, I think, that to hear that the Army doesn't have quite that same construct, you know, where you guys have the time to go be a dedicated aviation asset working together and then yeah. come to support the, the ground in the fight. Well, even our, our commander of ops group. So he was like the commander of the Joint Readiness Training Center. He even said one time, they said, you guys, aviation, need your own operations uh, center, your, your own tr- training center, our own sort of JRTC, mm-hmm. you know, where we could go and just focus on aviation stuff. The only time I've ever seen an, an aviation unit that I, I'm trying to think throughout my career, the only time I saw us able to do something like that uh, was at Fort Hood. And we had a, a, a pretty strong willed brigade commander. And uh, and he managed to to carve out some time, and and he had to do this. I mean, the moment he walked through the door as the brigade commander, and then it didn't happen till a year later, because uh, it took that long to get you know approval and, and worked out. But where we had, I think, two or three weeks, and and one battalion from the brigade went up to another post and was operating out of there, and then another brigade went to another post and was operating out of there. So we had this distributed brigade across several states. And we were doing our own training. We weren't supporting anybody else but ourselves. Uh, and I was the support battalion XO at the time. And it was great for us because the support battalion never goes to the field. I mean, it just it, it, even JRTC, you don't send the support battalion. Mm-hmm. You know, you send elements from the support battalion. You know, so out of 600 people and 400 vehicles, you know, you spend you send like 50 people and a couple vehicles. So these guys never get to go and do their job. And now we're telling them, hey, you know, buckle up. We're driving out to the field and we're setting up a, uh, a brigade level assembly area and support area. And these kids had never done it. Hell, I'd yeah. never done it. You know, um, I'd read about it in books, you know, and I had some experience with it as a very, very, very junior armor officer in Korea and seeing it like passing through it. You know, I'm like, oh, wow, look at all this stuff that's scattered everywhere. Well, now I'm basically owning that stuff and trying to map it out. And then you start having those conversations like, OK, this is a very lucrative target for artillery, you know, and, and artillery's long range artillery is only getting better. As Iran showed us back in early 2020, mm-hmm. right, with with a couple ballistic missiles. Well, what if those ballistic missiles had had, you know, a little bit more umph to them and some chemical weapons, right. things like that. So dispersion of this type of stuff, these very lucrative high value targets is, is a huge factor. And I mean, we spread this per, this uh, battalion over, uh, I don't know how many acres and it still wasn't enough. You know, the brigade commander was still like, hey, why is everybody so close? I'm like, that takes me 10 minutes to walk to the other side. What do you mean it's close? Yeah. You know, <laughs> And the battalions are, you know, 50 miles away. And now we're having to run convoys and stuff. And that stuff, I mean, we should be doing that all the time. But we're not because because you can't. I mean, it, it, we can say that we should be doing it all the time. But OK, you find me the money. Right. Um, you find me the white space on the calendar. And that's what it always goes back to is like how much space is on the calendar? Because anyone who served in the military particularly in the last 20 years, knows there's no such thing as white space on the calendar. There's always something that has to be done. Now, now we can argue how important that something is, but there's always something that, that has to be done somewhere, whether we like it or not. And before you know it, you start looking around and you're like, well, we're going to get one really good training event this year, mm-hmm. maybe. 
Yeah, because yeah, <laughs> and that's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, you're right. It, it's for those who don't know, white space is if you literally look at a calendar and you see a a day that has nothing in it, that's white space. And I don't even think it exists on military calendars, honestly. Uh, you know, we're no, we're easily no, dropping off the bottom. Maybe we get yeah, right, and even then, only sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and here's the other challenge that comes with that, right? So, why do people join? the military why do people join the military to fly apaches they want to fly apaches they don't want to do all the other minutiae and there's a certain level where they understand like okay i got it i'm in the army i got to do all this other this other crap that i didn't sign up for and wasn't on the poster but after a while that crap builds up to a level where it's like i don't want to do this anymore right and so we've seen this across the board i mean we've seen in every branch in the military aviators leaving the service and guys will scratch their head like i don't understand that guy was in the Air Force. He was flying F-16s. That's so cool. Yeah. Why did he leave? Because he wasn't flying right. F-16s. <laughs> because, because he was doing all this other stuff. So he was a, uh, you know, you sorry know? Uh, you know, for the language, but in the Navy, you know, SLJO, shitty little jobs officer who happens to, you know, yeah. fly once in a while or happens to go drive a small boat once in a while. Right. right? You know, it's that's not right. what you signed when up you, to do. And when you don't, that's right. And when you don't touch the controls for a while... Every flight is your first flight, mm-hmm. right? You're getting back in there and you're just doing the basics. And then, But your mind wants to go to that next step. You're, I want to do this big training event, but hell, I'm right now I'm still trying to work on my landings because I haven't touched the thing in right. a week. So the, the lack of training not only has an impact on the capability of the force, but it also has an impact on the morale and the longevity of the force. And so when you have a high turnover, well, then you're never going to get right. good because you're always going to be training the new guy. The new guy's going to get good. And then his ad so is up, his active duty service obligation. And now he's punching out uh, because he didn't get to fly as much as he thought he was right. going to. So I, and there's a misconception across leadership. And I'm not trying to turn this into a no, bash no, thing, this but I fine. think these are real strategic concerns. Uh, hell, I already know they're real strategic concerns because people smarter than me have said it. But, um, you know, I think there's a misconception that, well, you know, the real good ones are going to stay in. No, no, they're not. There's plenty of real good ones that get out as early as they can because they already know that they're swimming upstream and they're not going to make it. So they might as well just be happy and go do something right. else. And right now the airlines is hiring very, very lucratively, whether you flew a jet or a helicopter. So, yeah. So people want to train. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. People want to train because they want to do their job. That's what they signed up for. You know, you always hear the joke about the Navy, right, of guys who, who join to do something and then they, you know, end up scrubbing yep. the deck of Chip the ship or something. Nobody yep. signed up for that job. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody join signed up for Navy, that job. Join the Navy, see the world. Um, but yeah, join the world, chip paint. That's, yeah, saw it yeah. a lot. Yeah. Basically. So how many, how much of this, and I, there's so much institutional and it's across every service. And man, maybe we should do uh, a future project on that because I, I have a personal belief that when you don't have a viable peer level enemy, as you said, the count, the white space fills up. And if it's not going to fill up with, you know, in the Navy world, uh, blocking the carrier from an AGI and making sure the, the Soviet sub doesn't get inside the, the ring of seal around the carrier or that you defend against the bear box, you fill it up with things like MWR audits, moral welfare, welfare and recreation, or all those little SLJO things. So apart from the philosophy what are the training constraints themselves? So, you know, for fixed wing, yeah. it's space. And I think we think of, I mean, I, you know, when I went out to Fort Bliss to train out there, it seems enormous compared to yeah. a naval station, which when you think about it is just enough ground to support piers or a runway. 
But yeah. in the modern fight, how much space do you guys have to even do those things you were talking about where you're splitting the battalions by 50 miles and sure. the ability to do that? Yeah, it's a good question. Obviously, less space requirements. But but to touch on something you said before, before I, yeah. I lose it, you, you're 100% correct. There are no metrics in a coin from a tactical level. Uh, and, and I'll tell a war story. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I got shot in Iraq in 2006, and our mission that day was to fly around and, quote, provide presence. We flew around, and 30 minutes later, I'm bleeding all over the cockpit. The aircraft is, you know, beeping and bobbing and making all kinds of weird noises and falling apart. Fast forward 2009, I'm a, I'm a commander, and we're in Afghanistan, and I get told to send some guys out, and it was kind of a nonsensical flight. And I asked our squad or our battalion XO, like, well, you know, what are we doing? He said, well, we got to get out there. I said, oh, okay. So the problem with doing nothing is knowing when you're done. Right. And that's been the problem tactically with, with coin. And, and then by proxy there, the, the training for coin, well, what does success look like? How do you know you won? Well, okay, you shot some bad guys. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, but, <laughs> and? But, but, but what else? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And then what? Versus, just like you said, from a near peer threat standpoint when you talk about helicopters. Okay, yeah. There here's the here's the Russian horde going through the fold gap. Okay, well then we need to have a good understanding of terrain analysis, establishing a battle position, understanding ranges of ours and threat weapons, understanding, you know, how quickly can we launch this many hellfires at this many tanks and then reposition to the next spot because more tanks are coming, how to coordinate with artillery. We never had to do any of that crap in coin. Right. Ever. There's, what do I need to know? The range of an AK-47? Yeah. Like, There's nothing there. And so there's nothing to study. There's nothing to get good at other than stick wiggling and just flying aircraft, which, let's be honest, is not hard. That's the easy part of flying is is wiggling the sticks. So yeah, so that I, I mentioned that because I, I was thinking about it while you were talking. The white space. How do you fill the white space with nothing? Because that's essentially what you're trying to do. I just, I just, we just need to go fly right. and just put hours on the board. Well, those hours don't have quality. You know, it's like like I heard a guy say, some people have a thousand hours, some people have the same hour a thousand times. Right. <laughs> uh, there's no quality in just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And so now, as we shift into the near peer threat focus again. Now we have metrics to put on the board, and I don't think that people, again, you have a generation of guys who are now coming into leadership and senior positions. I mean, shit, there, there's guys, you know, who are brigade level warrant officers who I remember when they were brand new mm -hmm. warrant officers, and I was already a captain. Like, I'd already been doing this for yeah. a while. You know, I'm thinking of one in particular, 2009, he was a new kid. He's a brigade level senior warrant officer. They don't have any exposure to that type of stuff. So, so how do right, they? Exactly. And it's nothing against them. It's, I mean, they can read a book, but they don't have any longevity. They don't have any experience with that stuff. And so, how do you make that pivot quickly? It can happen, but there, there's nothing to make that happen fast. And I, and I think that's the the danger. But to go back to your question, how, how much space do you have? So, I mean, most military posts that have helicopters do have a sizable flight, you know, training area. So, you know, I, I'm, I live here at Fort Bragg where I spent a, all of my Kiowa days, you know, we'd fly in the, the, you know, the range, they had the impact areas and stuff. There's plenty of territory. And then there's other areas that are usually outside of what we call the restricted areas, you know, so if you're a pilot, you know what a restricted area is. Uh, restricted areas where mm -hmm. typically like the ranges and stuff are, but but the more intense sort of training areas. And then we would have these, sometimes they'd be in alert areas or, or just a MOA 
which is a military operations area. So that's just an airspace where dude can fly through with a Cessna. He just needs to understand right. that, hey, there's probably military aircraft here. I should probably just avoid it or be very, very careful. And so you'd have these these training areas that you could operate in. So I think for us, the challenge, and we tried to replicate this, and this is one of my another one of my pet peeves from JRTC, is we did acknowledge at the aviation level that, hey, precision long-range fires is huge and it's only getting more huge. So how do we tactically and and operationally, how do we remove ourselves from that threat or at least make it harder to, to hit? And so, you know, we're talking about operating out of Fort Polk, Louisiana, and we're looking on a map and we're saying, okay, realistically, if this was a real place, helicopters would be operating out of Houston. Right. That's like a six hour drive. Yeah. That's where they realistically would be coming. They would be flying up here. They would be stopping to get gas, you know, at a FARP. They would go conduct their mission. They would come back to the FARP, get gas, go back out, do another mission, come back, fly back to Houston. Well, obviously, we can't move the battalion down to Houston. They'd have way too much fun. <laughs> so how do we replicate that? Well, we came up with what we call penalty routes. And so it would be, okay, yeah, you're parked literally 10 miles from where the fight is, but theoretically you're 50 60 70 miles away so we're going to have you fly this route and and it's going to take you 50 60 miles out and bring you back well how do you think that ground force commander felt about that he he doesn't he's not thinking about penalty routes he's not thinking about the reaction time or the lack mm-hmm. of reaction time because again the coin construct they are used to having helicopters overhead 24 hours a day 7 days a week 5 minutes away no matter what goes on you make a radio call, 911, a helicopter shows up. They are very used to that. Well, you can't change a guy who's been in the, year, in the Army for 20-plus years, and he's a full bird colonel. His, his brain is set to that now, and trying to convince him otherwise, they don't want to hear it. They want helicopters on station right now. So those penalty routes never happened. We briefed them every single time. They never happen. And I used to I used to kind of get in trouble because I'd go to my boss and, and, you know, kind of wave the flag and say, hey, this is this is nonsense. But it would always get shot down because at the end of the day and you said it earlier, uh, you know, it's customer support. That's what all aviation mm-hmm. is. At the end of the day, I don't care who you are. You, you're providing an ad, you're providing a service to somebody else. It's the guy on the ground. Um, and I've had debates with some pilots who don't believe that. Well, I, I think you're wrong. We, we all provide a customer service. But. Just like the kid serving hamburgers at Burger King, he's got to learn how to cook the hamburgers at Burger King. And so we got to give him time to, to, to learn. And that's one of those things that we're just expecting the hamburger, but we're not letting that kid learn how to work the fryer. Right. So... That's been the, the challenge. But at the at the unit level, there's usually a plenty of space. Again, the limiting factor is not so much physical space, but it's it's time to actually, you know, take the battalion or squadron and actually throw them out in the field. It's very rare, very rare. I, I wanna say yeah, once in my whole career did I see that happen at the unit level. Okay. Yeah, I'm just sort of trying to think about this and and we've talked with other guests about how tech can help that, you know, I think we're getting in one of those areas yeah. where tech just can't help it. Cause at the end of the day, you know, to your point, just, I think everyone, and I mean, you can get it to a Mahan versus Corbett versus ground battle argument of military philosophy, but at the end of the day, mm-hmm. anyone in the military, who's not an infantryman is really a supporting element, right? I mean, that's who takes and holds yeah. the ground. That's who wins wars. So, yeah, until, until we get to the next construct and now we're going way down the rabbit hole of, you know, how, how, how can we affect things with cyber, right. 
right? I've always said like, well, why do I need to fly an airplane over there and drop a bomb on something if I can if I can cause the reactor to overheat? And right. Melt if itself, you can make it blow like, itself why do I need up. To do that? Right. Exactly. So once we get there, I think it's I think it's a huge game changer. You could get me down into the the conspiracy theory of of how long military aviation has <laughs> left, and it's it's probably not as long as other people think yeah. it is, but that's just my opinion. But I will say that there is a technology thing that can help, okay. and this is one of these things that I I actually feel pretty strongly about. It just depends on the level. So I'll give you an example. I don't think we talked about this last time. Hope not. Otherwise, we're repeating ourselves. But we came back from Afghanistan 2010, and the Army was playing the the shuffle game between aircraft, and we left some aircraft behind for the next unit. So we only got to bring home like half of our aircraft. Well, they all need to go through reset because they basically take the aircraft apart, hose them out, clean them up. And, you know, they lose like 200 pounds of sand. Yeah. You know, so the point is, again, guys still have to fly. They still have to maintain currency. You get new pilots into the unit. You have a very limited number of aircraft. So if you're not an instructor pilot or a guy getting a check ride or going through training, you're not flying. Well, what do you do with the 10 quote unquote combat veterans, seasoned warriors who just came off deployment and now they don't even get to really touch an aircraft except maybe once a week just to go up for an hour just to maintain some currency. So we have some technology out there. And the, the primary one that we had, and I, I'm, it's it's still it's still active, is the uh, it's called the AVCAT, so the Aviation Combat Tactical Trainer. Uh, and when I was a tank guy, we had the exact same thing. It was called the CCTT, Close Combat Tactical Trainer. Both of these are great if you use them the right way, and that's kind of the the crux. And this is the thing that I saw people sort of just not you know make that switch because they they want to look at these things as simulators, and they say, well, it's a terrible simulator. Yes, it is a terrible flight simulator. It is a fantastic cockpit simulator. It is a fantastic way to replicate a tactical scenario and make people make decisions. And so picture a white trailer hooked up to another white trailer. And inside these white trailers, they have like a little very poorly looking constructed cockpit and a big screen in front of you. It's got a collective cyclic, all that stuff. You can wear the three-dimensional helmet and you look like something out of like a horror movie. It's like these weird bug eye looking things, but it is like sort of a VR or you could just use the screen and, and not worry about that stuff because um, some people did get a little bit queasy because it doesn't move. It's, you know, it's not a full motion simulator, but it connects to the guy next door. I've flown four ship missions in the AVCAT. So you've got a pilot co-pilot, times four. And then what you have in the attached to the trailers is the little command center. And there's two civilian guys who that's their whole job in life is to run this AVCAT for you. So we come back from Afghanistan and I'm, you know, I'm a video game nerd. I like making stuff for, for games mm-hmm. and stuff. So I basically created a world. I said, okay, where's this unit deploying to next? I'm not even going on the next deployment, but I figure out, okay, they're going to this place in Afghanistan. I get the map data, you know, I get those guys to load that map data for that part of Afghanistan. I build a construct of frequencies and units and call signs, you know, okay, this battalion would own this part of this map and this battalion, and this is their frequencies and stuff. And I would just create missions. And then I would go sit in the command center and I would have four guys go fly a two ship. And then I would just throw curveballs at them. You know, I tell them, hey, you're going to go do a route reconnaissance. And then 10 minutes later, I call them and tell them, hey, this, you know, this element's under attack. You need to go to this grid and basically replicate conflict, Mm -hmm. all the things that we had just done. And it was great for those people who were new, especially we'd put the new guys in, you know, guys who are, you know, maybe they just made pilot command or maybe they were getting ready to make pilot command. 
Well, now you're putting them in the seat and you're saying, hey, you're the air mission commander. You're the most junior guy here, but you're the air mission commander. You're the one that's going to make all the decisions because that's a great place for it because, I mean, you're not going to die. Right. So you give them all these scenarios. You make them make these decisions. You make them go through the motions. And again, it's a great cockpit simulator. You know, it's, it's simulating, obviously, your fuel and ammo uh, expenditure. It's it's a terrible flight simulator. <laughs> you're right. not going to walk out of there feeling very confident with how you fly. Your hovering is going to suck, but um, but you're going to be able to make decisions and fight the aircraft, and you're be able to fight the team. And so those are those things that we need to do more of. And I again, I saw this very from a I'll put it this way: very few times was I ever told for me or my people to go into AVCAT. Mm-hmm. It was usually me driving the train, and that was just me. And when we started doing it, my fellow commanders saw what we were doing over in my troop, and they're like, "Hey, can we get in on that?" You know. But there was never any push from a higher level to do that stuff. The higher needs to do that, and it comes with creativity. And that's what one of those things that I think the military in general lacks when it comes to training is creativity. We get very stuck in like, "Well, this is how we do." You know, this, we do JRTC. Right. Okay. Well, JRTC isn't working for us. What else can we do? Well, well, we do JRTC. <laughs> um, so there's a lack of creativity, and and I think at the commander, the troop company commander level, that captain, army captain, not navy level, they can really start using some creativity and leveraging those guys and create some training. And so that can sort of offset because because again, I can say what is probably the most complex thing that an attack helicopter can do? Probably like a deep attack. Right. Going coordinating for uh, seed artillery, uh, EW support, fixed wing support, going past in the enemy lines and hitting some valuable target and also dealing with SAMs and stuff along the way. That's probably the most complex thing we can do or a large scale air assault. Well, we can practice all that stuff in the AVCAT or if another system comes along to replace it, we can practice those things. And then what's the next step? Well, now we got to get the staff and we got to actually make them plan the mission, you know, like like mm-hmm. plan your part of the mission. Um, it shouldn't be Captain Harris planning a squadron assault. It should be squadron planning a squadron, you know, attack right. and, and, and then handing it down for me for me to do my chunk. So we can leverage the the um, the technology because then we can just replicate the staff function. The staff, a, a dude working a radio, never ever ever sees a helicopter shoot a missile. Right. So what difference does it make if it really happened or if I just tell him it happens over a radio? Right. So we can replicate all that stuff. You could set up their little talk with their their tents and and stuff, and set it up right outside of those uh those AVCAT simulators, and they can function as a talk. Um, and then we can we can integrate it with with the uh, the simulation that's going on. And so those are the types of things that we can leverage technology to to do that type of training. And it, and it and it, I don't know cost. You know, I'm not going to sit here and tell you how long. It, I I guarantee it costs less to fly five you know five or six helicopters. Yeah. But uh, from a time standpoint, that stuff's already there. I mean, every post I've been to, there's an AVCAT facility already already available. And generally it was not being used. So there's ways to leverage that technology. It doesn't cost that much. It just costs a lot of time on the upfront to build the plan. Uh, and then it's just a matter of cycling people through and going through those motions. Yeah. And I think you know, two things that jump out at me with that is one, the cost probably is pretty high, but th- apart from the financial costs, you're losing Costs more than anything. Yeah, it costs a lot to us uh, to replace destroyed helicopters and, and uh, train right. new pilots for the ones that are dying. Exactly. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, like, like yeah. who wants to do that calculus? No one wants to do that. Right. And then the other thing, yeah. of course, is you have to decide which end of the if you build it, they will come argument you fall on because you could do this and maybe it drags people along if that's there. 
but there needs to be a philosophical change. Like you said, and I, yeah, I won't yeah. say it's it's unique to uh, the Army, right? Because I think we've seen, no. you know, my own service, the Navy, has had some pretty high-profile, you know, high-casualty numbers from a yeah. failure to execute one of our core competencies of seamanship. So, you know, because right. the white yeah. space is being filled up with the wrong stuff. I, you know, I don't care what era you're talking about. Yeah. I think the military calendar has never had white space, right? But I'd argue a lot of times that was for good reasons, right? Because yeah. you can never be ready enough for combat. Yeah, no, I was gonna say. I mean, it's you know, it's the old: the more you sweat in training, the less you exactly. bleed in war type type thing. I was just say it occurs to me one thing we haven't even touched on yet, though, is integrating uh, fixed wing support because that's also you know you talk about the <laughs> the guys are used to hey five minutes. And your helo is going to be there. I, I think yeah. I may have mentioned this earlier in the series. Hopefully I'm not repeating myself. You know, my first convoy I ever rode in in Iraq was delayed three days. Like we got up every night to get ready to go. And we we showed up at, at the start line and all went home because there was too, it was too dusty yeah. for the Apaches. And I just think of, you know, that's not yeah. a peer level war. Like you, you don't go, oh, right. We're not doing this because we don't have optimal air support. Well, in addition to to being used to that, I think we're used to, it may be 15 or 20 minutes, but you're used to fixed wing yeah. air support. These guys on the ground are used to that being able to come in. And we can talk all about whether or not that's going to be realistic in a, in a peer air threat environment. And oh, yeah. It, it probably isn't. But even if it isn't, we haven't even talked about training you know, those JTACs and the guys who are going to call in that air support yeah. to, number one, put the fires on the target or put the effects on the right target, and two, to avoid blue on blue. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, uh, to your comment regarding the dust storms and stuff, absolutely. Like, that's the one sort of bad lesson from COIN is that you don't have to do anything until you want to. You don't, you don't need to leave the base. There's essentially no reason to unless it's good for you. Um, and I've seen that where, yeah, we're not going to conduct this operation because the weather's not, you know, quite choice enough. You know, it's not high enough. Or I've seen convoys not go because the weather's not good enough for medevac. Right. Hey, those are great decisions. Like, I'm not, I'm not, right. you know, crapping on yeah. them at all. If those are the right calls because the environment that you're in. However, if that becomes your muscle memory, it, yeah, it's not going to translate if you're Ukraine. Right. They don't get to decide. <laughs> Oh well, the Russians are coming, but you know the weather's kind of kind of skosh. So right, I, yeah. I sorry, guys, not win. not going to come out today. Yeah, not happening. So, um, so that is one of those certainly a negative habit transfer, uh, just in general. And then, uh, yes, the the constant overhead from coin of aircraft. And I remember, you know, daily getting my brief for the flight. You know, here's here's what's happened in the last twenty four hours. Oh, okay, great. Here's a chart. That shows everything that's overhead. And oh, okay, so there's F-22s from this time to this time. There's F-16s from this time to this time. Here's all their call signs. Here's all their frequencies. I will probably never talk to them, but if I have to, all I got to do is tune up the frequency, call this call sign, and he's probably going to be overhead in three minutes. You know, I mean, hell, I, where I was at in Afghanistan, we would, at night, under goggles, you could see the tanker track. Mm -hmm. You know, you'd see all the fighters coming up because there was just this constant tanker track right above my, my FOB. Guys do not understand, or a lot of people just don't understand or appreciate, I guess maybe is the word, 
that that is not how it's necessarily going to be, at least in the early stages, right. right? So the Air Force and the Navy, God willing, are going to create that that air dominance, right? That air supremacy so that we can have that constant overhead. But in the beginning, it's probably ne- not necessarily going to be a thing. Um, I mean, we could get into the debate of how good everyone else's Air Forces are and stuff. But but let's just let's just take the worst case scenario mm-hmm. that it's not going to be. Um, again, one of those lessons I saw all the time at JRTC was this immediate knee-jerk reaction to, all right, we, let's call the Apaches. Mm-hmm. But wait a minute, you you just, you know, we just had a conversation. I remember one time in particular, I won't say the brigade, but okay. one time in particular, you know, very early, right at the beginning of the rotation, I was the brigade aviation officer of OC, and I was having a discussion with their BAO, and, and then their brigade commander or somebody was chiming in. And uh, he said, yeah, we're not we're not going to do the coin thing like we are going to be very deliberate about when we use our Apaches. You know, we're going to we're going to plan for them just like we would anything else. And I was like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, that survived two days. Right. That survived (laughs) the very first time one of the battalion commanders calls up and says, hey, I got guys. I got troops in contact. Mm -hmm. Well, where are the Apaches? Well, 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 they're not here because you you said you were going to only use them when you planned these. Why? I need them now. You know, and so we immediately fall back into that coin centric, you know, and I, of course I didn't say it, but I wanted to say it like, hey, I got an idea. How about your infantry guys fight like infantry guys for a little bit? Yeah. You know, like you, you, you actually don't need air support every moment of the day. You can actually fight without it. And if you can't, then maybe you should go back and train right. harder. It, um, there are going to be times where you can't have air. Right. And that sounds a little cold blooded or parochial, but it does. But I think it's it's a very valid comment because the reality is in a peer competition, that's what they're going to have to do. Well, yeah. Well, there was a concept in the Army. I don't know if it's still a thing, but I remember, it's probably about 10 years ago, I remember hearing it a lot, is talking about the, the overmatch at the squad level. Mm-hmm. And and it was very, in my opinion, a wise concept. It was basically saying, okay, from, from at least from the Army standpoint, what is the fundamental building block that we fight? It's the squad, right? It's that nine-man squad. And you could look across different armies, and it's roughly the same. Okay, so our building block is roughly the same as everyone's building block. How do I get overmatch with that building block against mm-hmm. that other building block? And so that's when you start layering in new types of weapons, new types of equipment, you know, tiny handheld drones that can see around corners, all that stuff that's integrated at the squad level. So, so yeah, the, the concept is there. The, the problem is not the concept. The problem is the execution because we, again, we have fallen back on 20 years of bad habits and to now go forward into that near peer type situation, you have to plan for your air. You have to plan because you have a limited asset of of helicopters, of jets. How are you going to plan and and make them show up at the right place at the right time? I can't tell you how many convoys I've had to cover both in training and in, in, in combat where you know, they're doing a, a 13 hour convoy. Well, I can't even fly for 13 right. hours. Okay, so, and I try to get them to understand like, okay, for nine of these hours, you are driving through the bear desert. There is nothing there. If you get ambushed in the bear desert, then the enemy's won. Like we right. might as well pack yeah. up. Like they, they've they've got you. Right. You know, it's it's Dagum the Fremen. Yeah, sure. Right. Have got exactly. You. But but look along your route. Here's a point where you're going to go through this town, and it's only going to take you 15, 20 minutes to get through this town, unless you get you know ambushed. And then you're going to be there forever. And then you got another two hours of desert, and then you got another town. Hey, wouldn't it be really cool? If you could sit down, draw this route, time it out, which I know you can because I used to be an armor guy and I know how to, right. to do time distance analysis, figure out when you think you're going to get to this town and then put in the request to have air on station at those times. Mm-hmm. You could never get them to do that. And so what would happen? It would just be like in World War II, you hear about the B-17s flying into Germany and right about when they get to uh, where the Luftwaffe could go, 
that's when the the fighter escort would have to go back right. and get gas. It was the same concept. I'm flying idiot circles over these convoys for hours in the bare desert. They get right about to the town. I'm like, hey, man, I got to go get gas. And now they're going through this complex terrain without air cover. And so trying to get them to understand that at a near-peer threat, you have to be able to think that way. Uh, For fixed wing, working with them, uh, one of the the beautiful things about being stationed at Fort Bragg back in the good old days was um, uh, we had A-10s here. So Pope, Pope was an Air Force base. I think it's an Army airfield now, but... Uh, Pope Air Force Base had an A-10 squadron. I don't know what their name was. Uh, they were constantly out flying. And I, at least I think for them, like almost every flight they went up, they had a couple hundred rounds of gun. And so they would go out and shoot proficiency, which I think is amazing considering how much crap I would get, you know, like how litigious we were about having armed aircraft. But here's A-10s just taking off with gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I wish, you know, imagine how great a shots we would be if we could do that. But but they would take off and they would go to the range, which was, you know, a three minute flight for them and just start shooting. Well, if if I went out into the range and I was listening and I would hear an A-10 call sign or a JTAC, I would call range control and basically get them to do the introductions. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, can I can I work with these guys? And they're like, yeah, yeah, let me call. They call the JTAC. And next thing you know, I'm lazing for A-10s mm-hmm. or I'm working with F-15s. Like those things would happen. But again, those were not driven. I've never done a, a driven training event from hire where we worked with fixed wing, unless it was at JRTC or something like that. Um, so those are opportunity type targets. Pope Air Force Base ended up shutting down its its A-10 unit. It you know went I don't know where. So we didn't have any of that. And so the only time that I ever worked with fixed wing after that uh, was kind of a funny story. We saw some guys driving around. I feel like I told the story last time. I hope I didn't. We saw these guys driving around, uh, landed and talked to them. Turns out they were JTACs. They ended up inviting us to do this training event with these F-16s down at Shaw Air Force Base. And so we did like two weeks of dedicated training with these F-16s. You know, they were dropping nice. concrete bombs and we were working with the JTACs. Yeah. It was it was really dynamic. The JTACs were like running around in this town in South Carolina and people were like kind of weirded out. There's helicopters yeah. and dudes running around in the woods, but they had, you know, cleared it with the police and stuff. But again, these are like situations that fall in your lap. If I had not told my wingman to like, hey, land and talk to those guys on those four wheelers down there because they look like they're doing something cool. Right. And it turns out they were special operations JTACs. If we had never done that, we would have never met those guys. We would have never done that training. And so, yeah, it's unfortunate that and it's not a it's not a parochial thing, right? I don't think it's people. Well, we don't want to we don't want to work with the fixed wing guys. I think it's just a matter of go right back to that calendar and say, where, where do we find the time to do this? And when you're at the squadron battalion level, you know, and I've been there, it's very hard to look at the calendar and not see just all the stuff. But but you have to then break it down. It's like, OK, well, the squadron is busy. But what part of the squadron is busy? Mm-hmm. You know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday looks really full it's really full for squadron headquarters. It's not really full for Alpha and Bravo Troop. So what could we get Alpha and Bravo Troop doing? And so trying to look forward and look far enough out to be able to schedule that stuff is sort of an art form. And I'm not saying that I was good at it by any stretch of the imagination, but I had I had a few successes uh, and I've seen a few successes. But but that's one of those things that people have to do is they have to kind of look at the calendar and uh, and, and leaders at all, level, they, they, at all levels, they got to look at that calendar and try to find you know, the hidden nuggets of time that, that are there. Mm-hmm. They just don't jump out at you. Right. It's just, you're never going to find a day on the calendar that there's just nothing. Right. But you got to look at the calendar and say, okay, is there a day of nothing that I can still work with? Right. 
yeah, half of my troop is going to be at the range, you know, doing range cleanup or, or some other nonsense. Well, what's the other half going to be doing? What can I get them to, to do? Right. So. And yeah, what we're hearing so much comes back to leadership philosophy, training philosophy. One thing I want yeah, to circle back to that you said that I think is really important is, you know, hey, if if you guys gone up loaded every time, what a great shot you'd be. And I think there's this misconception that, well, you know, it's all computerized now, right? I mean, hey, I, I play I play Modern Warfare, right? I should be able to put a cursor on a target and bam, it's done, right? Well, it's yeah. it's not that easy. It really isn't. No, um, you know, and especially as a Kiowa guy, there was no automation. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were shooting rockets or 50 cal, you know, you were using the force. Maybe <laughs> yeah. you drew a maybe you drew a little uh, grease pencil mark on the windshield. Uh, I didn't even do that. You know, I just you just nose it over and it, it feels mm-hmm. right. You know, it's like, OK, th- this will probably go where I want it to. Oh, no, it didn't. Let me let me adjust a little bit. You can get away with that. You can't get away with that when ground forces are within 200 meters right. of your target. You know, and, that, and that's where you got to have that that accuracy. And you, and you got especially as something when you're fighting, you're fighting a, a Kiowa with unguided rockets and 50 cal. You have to practice that uh, over and over. I had a squadron commander who was a uh, Little Bird gun pilot. He had commanded the Little Bird uh, uh, company at the 160th. Mm-hmm. And I remember him telling me one day we, we were I was trying to plan some gunnery event or something. And, and he says, you know, Brian, I'm, I'm used to shooting like three or four times a week. Yeah. And I said, sir, you're going to be lucky if we shoot three or four times this year. Yeah. You know, like we just we're not even stracked for it. Stracked being the I don't remember what it stands for, but basically your ammo allocation. Right. Yeah. You know, this is how much ammo you have. Uh, the game I used to play was was <laughs> when I was an ops, uh, uh, a plans officer as a captain is I would have my uh, range. They call it Rifmus, basically the range management system. Mm-hmm. He would go on to Rifmus. I'd say like, hey, find me who's shooting on range, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's only certain certain ranges that we could shoot on that the ground guys could shoot on too. And so he'd come back and say, oh, it's, you know, 4th Battalion, this, you know, whatever brigade. I would call that battalion and say, hey, I see you guys are going to shoot next month at this range. Would you like to have Kiowas with you? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'd yeah. love it. You know, they always want helicopters. Yeah. I was like, cool, get me 50 cal. Because they have tons of 50 cal. Yeah, that makes sense. And so they would give me ammo. They couldn't get rockets because they couldn't request rockets. And they sure as hell couldn't get Hellfires. Mm-hmm. But they could get 50 cal. So, you know, and then you just, you, you know, it wouldn't be much, but you'd get an allocation. You say, okay, hey, troops, you know, we can offer up a couple iterations of shooting. So so put up who you want. It's, but but again, you, you got to have some creativity to, yeah. to come up with these things. Um, but if you went off your own ammo allocation, you had enough to do... I, th- I think it was a gunnery every six months and then a couple other like little live fires and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's very challenging. And yeah, you definitely just didn't have the ammo to just go out and shoot all the time. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, like that Avcat I told you about, you know, that is not the platform that you want to practice shooting on. You might hit the earth uh, <laughs> accidentally uh, after practicing in the Avcat. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have any any way of doing that. But even in the Apache, it was the same concept. The Apache's a lot more a lot more user friendly from an aiming standpoint. There are a lot of systems that are going to help you, but you know, again, it's not foolproof. The 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 thirty millimeter is still an area effect weapon. The rockets are still basically giant bottle rockets that are going to go where they want to go. You know, the only thing that you can practice in simulation and uh, and is really expensive to shoot otherwise is Hellfires. You know, these are you know six figure missiles. Uh, but they're laser guided. You can you could very easily simulate those, right. and that's typically what we did: is fly around with the clap, the what we call the captive flight trainer. <laughs> so it was a a dummy missile, but with a real uh, seeker head, and so you could go out there, squirt the laser, it would see the laser. So you could go through the motions of of shooting the Hellfire. But yeah, no gunnery uh, gunnery training. 
uh, at the unit level was difficult. And, uh, you know, that was one of the good things about going to like JRTC or NTC is you would get a, a stipend of ammo and there would be a gunnery portion. There would be a live fire event with the uh, the ground force. Uh, heavily, of course, heavily scripted, as it has to be, because you've got guys on the ground with rifles, and you got artillery shooting, you got helicopters. You know, so that you would very go through a very lockstep uh, dry fire run, and then blank fire run, and then live fire run. You know, they do it during the day, they do it at night. So, you know, it was unfortunately heavily scripted. I think it was one of those, maybe it was a little bit of a confidence builder more than anything else. But yeah, yeah. Gunnery training in aviation is certainly something that we could use more of, but I mean, cost is right. prohibitively expensive. All right. Well, I, you know, what have, what have we not talked about? I guess we haven't really talked about the electronic spectrum and, and how that does or doesn't affect Army aviation and, and well, obviously comms it affects huge, but well, I can speak to that because I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I wanted to mention. It's not something that we have, um, at least if if we do, I I don't know where other than what I've talked about NTC, JRTC. But I know when I was here flying at Bragg, uh, I believe it was either Camp Lejeune or Cherry Point uh, Marine Corps. They they had an ASE airspace or I'm sorry aircraft uh, survivability equipment range. Uh, I never got to fly on it, but I know some guys that did. And it was essentially the same thing as, as I described earlier, these these emitters were set up. And so you would go out there and try to evade being detected and stuff like that. Again, I think that's one of those things that if we're going to get back to being serious about a near peer type conflict, we, we got to get to because we are so used to ignoring those systems right now. Because they go off, you know, I mean, you know, without giving away any secrets here, a lot of times one radar may sound like another radar to a system, you know, and it's going to it's going to tell you that you're being tracked by something that you're not. You know, those things happen. I mean, it happens in everything that has to do with radar. I've been on aircraft that suddenly it starts dumping flares and I have no idea why, you know, because it, it thought that it was under attack. And so it started dumping flares. But we're so used to that happening that we don't take it seriously anymore. And so my fear is when we get into the real deal, you know, I know guys who've been tracked by no kidding systems that wanted to shoot them down. Mm -hmm. You know, when things were getting hot in Syria, that's a very different feeling. And I remember flying out of Syria not long after that and suddenly being told by my aircraft that I was being tracked by a, I think it was a ZSU-23. You know, for a, for, a, for a split second, I was like, oh my God, you know, like it's about to go right. down. And then I realized I'm in the middle of nowhere. Like there's not a ZSU right. sitting out here. But yeah, it, absolutely. You're bringing up, it's something that, that is even more prevalent now than it was 20 years ago, 40 years ago, that uh, needs to be a part of the training regimen is is uh, is ASE, the, the, the radar and EW. And then on top of that, drones. Right. I mean... We started doing drone swarm attacks at JRTC. I mean, obviously, just watch anything out of Ukraine and see the effectiveness of drones and see the impact it can have even just in air ops. I mean, if you just put up a wall of drones and helicopters are flying around, I mean, how long before you run into one of those and it causes a problem? Um, So these these are the things that I think, unfortunately, across the military, there is a... It kind of goes back to culture, but, you know, we're comfortable with a certain style of thinking. I always I always joked about like we all just want Desert Storm again. Right. Like we all just want that perfect. Like I've got a lot of cool technology. You have less than me. I can win really quick and it's relatively easy. 
it that's not the world we live in anymore. And I'm, I'm afraid that there's a lot of people that still kind of think that way and are not recognizing it. And hopefully, I hate it that it's happening, but hopefully the situation in Ukraine is, is maybe making some people understand just how real some of these things are that we, you know, we've discounted right. for, for a lot of years. Yeah, not being insensitive to the human suffering that's going on, but, you know, yeah. take this as a wake-up call. Yeah. And, you know, shortly before that, on, on a smaller scale, there was uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan sort of gave us a foretaste yeah. of what we were going to see as well. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, what have we missed? Oh, I, uh, well, I, we could go on. You yeah, tell, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, if you can't tell, this yeah. is one of my passion projects and, and hopefully I didn't derail you no, too much. No, I think this I, is great. I, I just I do feel strongly about training and I there is no solution to make training better. But if I could give one piece of advice to, to junior leaders, if there's anyone who is listening and you're just coming up and you're be creative, like that's all you can do. Because if you're waiting for, for, for dad to give you the answers, he ain't, he ain't going to do it. He's too busy doing other dad that's stuff. Right. Like you got to be the dad for your organization and you've got to be creative and you got to think about what, what do my guys need? And it could be as simple as, like I said, you know, coming up with a, uh, a plan in the simulation. Hell, we did evasion training. I called the the what do you call it the, the JPMR or whatever the, the organization that handles recovery. Oh yeah, like if uh, an aircraft gets shot down. Yeah, uh, Joint Personnel it's, Recovery. JPR. There you go. Yeah. JPRC. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got those survival radios that if you get shot down, you push one button and immediately it contacts those guys. And they always tell you, do not push this button. Yeah. You know, don't push this button or it'll immediately set off the locator and it'll 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 activate all this stuff. Well, it turns out you can actually call the the recovery center and coordinate with them to have a window of time where you can actually push that button and they will actually transmit evasion data to you. Mm-hmm. And it's just something that you said. And so we did that. We said, okay, this is our extraction grid. Yeah. And we've been, quote unquote, shot down here in the woods. Okay, it's it's four o'clock. Push the button. And then sure enough, they start, you know, squirting data to you. And you treat it like an evasion scenario. And you, just, you know, your crew chiefs are out there chasing the pilots, which they love. Yeah. But with that, because it's creative, creativity. That's it. Right. And can you imagine trying to figure that out, you know, receiving that information in the worst case scenario? Oh, oh, yeah. Like, uh, apart from dying, the literal worst case scenario. Okay, I'm down behind enemy lines. I might be hurt. I might be wounded. There's people chasing me. I think I'll try and figure yeah. out how this piece of gear works. Yeah, let me push this button. I'm never done. Right. I have no idea what it's actually going to look like when it when I do push it. No, I, you can't overstate the uh, the importance of muscle memory. And I always tell people about muscle memory, especially junior pilots. You know, when I got shot, I was doing stuff in the cockpit that did not matter, but it was muscle memory to me to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm bleeding all over the cockpit. There's fuel leaking out of the bottom of it. Like this thing's falling apart and I'm bothering to turn off the sight. Because if I don't turn it off when we land, you know, the AC generator will shut down and it, you know, the site won't shut down properly. Who cares? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm lucky to be alive, but I'm turning down the site because I don't want to break the site. That's right. But but it's muscle memory. And so exactly when you're in a high stress environment, high stress situation, it is not time for discovery learning. It's time to fall back on training. And combat is the last place you want to do something for the first time. Well, there you go. I think that is, we'll end there. I think that combat is the... Whatever you just said, I can't even say it right. (laughs) (laughs) Combat is the last place you want to learn how to do something. Uh, That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, Casmo, as always, great. I really appreciate your time. And I think we will be working on some stuff in the future because there's a lot out here to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. uh, That I think is really, really important. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, man. Yep. Thanks. Again, a great talk with Casmo. 
As you can see, as good as our army is, there's still room for improvement. And I think this discussion was a perfect capstone for the three interviews about large-scale training. We looked at the Air Force Red Flag program and how it has evolved to focus on specific skill sets and talked about how Nautic manages warfare training and preparation for deploying carrier strike groups. Our interview with CASMO rounded that out by highlighting the challenges to air combat training in non-aviation-centric organizations. In all cases, technology has advanced to the point that existing training structures, ranges, and funding are all challenged to emulate real-world threats and to do so while maintaining operational security, a problem that will only grow more intense as time goes on. With that in mind, we're going to close out the series next time by talking to F-35 test pilot Billy Flynn about 5th Gen aircraft and how they changed the battlefield, as well as with former F-14 pilot and Cubic Strategic Development Director Paul P.K. Averna about Cubic's live virtual constructive training system and how it can help meet future training challenges. Until then, keep your head on a swivel and get in the fight. Fights On has been made possible by a contribution from Cubic Corporation. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow.